two flights are on a deadly collision course. How did a perfect storm of confusion, training, maintenance, and a singular air traffic controller cause two planes to collide over Überlingen, Germany? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. <laughs> and I'm Christy. We have... Aaron! Yay! Aaron's back. Yes, I'm back. Hello, I guess guys. you can probably figure out why he's on. Yeah. Because the last two times he was on. <laughs> yeah. And if you read the title. title of this episode, then you probably know exactly what's going to happen. Da-da-da! I've, been... <laughs> <laughs> I've been relatively mysterious about collisions in the past we're not going to be any kind of mysterious about this one this is one of the most famous ones and it's pretty terrible thank you to chris our patron chris for recommending this episode thanks chris i'm surprised it wasn't recommended earlier to be perfectly honest with you honestly yeah same (laughs) like the other two were recommended before three technically before this one yeah this is this is a big one and it is quite Quite famous. So, every, I'm sure everyone's dying with anticipation. I'm sure. What are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering the Uberlingen collision. Yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, that. <laughs> this was actually one of the first accidents I really spent time like watching things and reading about way, way back when. And this, I mean, this was, I'm talking like not very long after this actually happened. I was very young at the time, but... It's a big deal. We were alive when this happened. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, I remember watching, actually, the Mayday episode, like, when it first aired with my dad, way back when. And it was one of those things, like, this and Tenerife were the two big ones that, Yep. like, I was already interested in aviation. And then, like, seeing these things was like, wow, that shouldn't happen. No, no it shouldn't happen. <laughs> but it did. It did. And then we go over why it probably won't happen again. Yeah, so this was a big one, and this one changed aviation in a few big ways. But this one's going to bring up a topic we've never really talked about before, and that's TCAS. Yep. So we'll start with DHL Flight 611. This collision happened on July 1st of 2002. And the DHL flight we're talking about, it was a 757-200 freighter, of course, because it's DHL. The tail number, which I found really interesting, actually, was Alpha Niner Charlie-Delta Hotel Lima. So in other words... A9C-DHL. Ha. Yes. Aha. A9C. I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. I think it might be Bahrain. It is Bahrain. It is Bahrain? Can confirm. Okay, that's really interesting. There aren't very many airplanes registered in Bahrain, which is why they were able to get DHL specifically on this airplane as its tail number. And most of DHL's airplanes are not registered to Bahrain. Most of them are registered to, like, Belgium. Yeah. Where they have a huge base. That in Germany. Yeah. Speaking of, this flight was from Bahrain to Brussels huh. in Belgium, with an intermediate stop in Bergamo in Italy. Bergamo There's... is outside of Milan. Okay. This crew was based in Bahrain, which is really interesting. We'll get to that in a minute. But there... I know. The captain was Paul Phillips. Nope, he's not from Bahrain. <laughs> he is the most American-sounding <laughs> name. And he's I'm not, sure actually. He's from, I think he's from, he's from he's, the UK, right? He is. Yeah. He's he British. British. Yeah. Yes, he was 47 it's years old. A very English-sounding name. Yeah. yeah. He was 47 years old. He had around 12,000 hours, of which 4,145 hours were on the 757. So, decently experienced. The first officer was Brant Campioni. No, he's not Italian. 
was gonna and say. no, he's yeah. not British. Yeah, he's he's Italian. Canadian. He's Canadian. Yep. He's Canadian. Yeah. He was 34 years old. He had 6,600 hours total, of which 176 hours were on the 757. So he was new to the type. So I had I had this question while we were driving yesterday, and I decided not to ask you. Mm-hmm. So if you're rated, because when you get a rating for the 757, you're also rated for the 767. Mm-hmm. Can you just like switch between the two, or are you normally just on one or the other? I mean, it's dependent on the airline, but yeah, yeah. you can switch between the two. Like at FedEx, they can do either. Yeah. And at United, they could theoretically do either, although they usually keep their pilots to just one or the other. That's more what I meant. Yeah, it's kind of like the same with like the 777 and the 87. Yeah. It's like same airframe, kind of same aerodynamics, just a little bit of different systems. So, yes, them, yeah. their cockpit's different enough. With the 67 and the 57, they're... A joint rating. Yeah, identical. Exactly. They literally made the same cockpit and put it in the airplane. Yeah. The only thing that you have to be aware of is weight and balance differences. I just didn't know if they stuck with one or, like... Okay, today, honey, I'm going to go and I'm going to fly a 57, but on my way home, I'm going to fly a 67. Right. Most I'll of the, see you at 8. Yeah, most of the time, <laughs> most airlines don't do too much switching around from one okay. to the other, but some airlines can. Like I said, like FedEx does. Yeah. UPS actually can. They have both. There's your fun fact of the day. Yeah. DHL has both, but they don't have many yeah. of the 67s. The crew had flown together for all of June, so all of the month prior, and they had flown the accident route several times during that previous month. The last time was just days earlier on June 28th of 02. The crew was then off for 75 hours before the accident flight. The flight crew checked in at 2.30 p.m. local time. I'm going to try to do all this in local time, and I tried really hard because the whole report was written in Zulu. Ew. Yes. <laughs> or UTC. Yeah. Yes. I only had to do a one hour and three hour conversion because those were the times that they had written in their report. I didn't know I had to do a conversion until he told me like two hours after I wrote my script. So I'm sorry. sorry. Anyways, at 2.30 p.m. local time in Bahrain, the flight crew checked in. And at 4.30 p.m., so about two hours later, the, the flight departed Bahrain for Bergamo. The flight to Bergamo was normal. Took about five hours and 40 minutes. Arriving at 8.10 p.m. local time. While at Bergamo, the plane was refueled, the cargo was unloaded and reloaded, and the crew prepared for the next leg of the flight. The takeoff for Brussels occurred around two hours after the plane had arrived in Bergamo, departing at 10.06 p.m. The first officer was to be the pilot flying, while the captain was to be the pilot monitoring. That is far less confusing on this airplane than the other one. We'll get to that later. (laughs) The flight plan had the flight cruising at 36,000 feet at 463 knots for an estimated flight time of 1 hour and 11 minutes. At 10.21 p.m. and 50 seconds, the captain contacted Zurich Center on 128.050. That is the frequency that he contacted while they were cruising at flight level 260, so 26,000 feet. And about six seconds later, the air traffic controller gave the flight a squat code of 7524. So a squat code, we don't talk about this much, but on transponders, usually air traffic controllers give you a code. And that gives them some idea of who you are and what you are doing. There are certain codes for emergencies you can tune, and there are certain codes for VFR. So in other words, you are just out in space, not talking to anybody. You don't have to, although you can. Yeah. Don't talk to me. 
uh, just to elaborate on that a little bit more. Yes, because um, you would be able to tell this more. <laughs> Generally speaking, if you get a code that's not 1200, 1200 yep. is the VRFAR code. Fun fact, 1201 is the glider code. Nice. So, <laughs> But anything outside of that is usually IFR traffic, and I think about that before and what IFR traffic is. So Yes. But that that's the, like, the main discrepancy between why these frequencies matter right. so much. So really all this is, it's a pretty arbitrary thing. They don't give you really like a very specific code for like a very specific reason. It's more like this code is assigned to you to tell me that you're an instrument plane and you're in my airspace. I'm controlling you. That's about it. When you change controllers, they'll usually have you change your code as well. Yeah. Because that just tells them that reminds them that you're on my radar and I'm tracking you. Right. And it usually happens between centers. Yes. That's usually where it happens. Although sometimes uh, I've experienced this going down to, from Springs to the Denver, just on approach versus center, different squat code. And I was yep. like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yep. Whatever works. Yeah. So it's kind of an arbitrary thing, but it just has some meaning when it, they look at it on radar. So really it's for ATC. Yes. For yeah. More than anybody. Yep. After this, the air traffic controller gave the flight clearance to go direct to the Tango VOR. I was amazed that that's actually what it was called, but it was. And they gave him a clearance to climb from 26,000 feet to 32,000 feet. The captain then requested a climb to 36,000 feet, which was their planned cruising altitude. So he just wanted to get there, especially because their flight wasn't super long. So getting to 36,000 feet, they weren't going to be there very long once they were there. Well, and then the sooner you get there, the less fuel you burn. Exactly. The air traffic controller granted this request about four minutes later at 10.26 p.m. and 36 seconds. A little over three minutes later at 10.29 p.m. and 50 seconds, the plane reached its cruising altitude of 36,000 feet. At 10.34 p.m. and 30 seconds, the airplane was flying over the Swiss-German border over Lake Constance when the first officer handed over control to the captain in order to use the lavatory, which was installed at the rear of the cockpit. The captain agreed that he had the control of the plane. At that point, he's on autopilot, so it's kind of like just monitoring anyways. But it was entirely his responsibility. Eleven seconds later, the TCAS, or the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, makes complete sense now, yep. right? Yeah. It's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a system that detects traffic. And helps you avoid and it. And helps you avoid it. <laughs> a collision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally everything that came out of every collision we've talked about so far is yeah. a TCAS. Yes. Yeah. But now we're going to talk about, so that all those ones we've talked about in the past, those collisions. Those mid-air collisions. Those mid-air collisions specifically, yes. That happened in mid-air. They led to the TCAS system, but then... This happened. This happened. So... Do you want to explain what TCAS does? Yes. So TCAS specifically actually looks for other airplanes in the area using transponders. It's very similar to what we use now with ADS-B. is a lot more advanced and capable, especially with, when it comes to GA traffic and such. But yeah. with the, the TCAS system, it was really built into larger airplanes and allowed them to fly high and not have to worry about the other traffic because if anything was conflicting with it, it would detect the other airplane, and in due time, would it would both display it on each one of the airplane's little TCAS display, which is usually on the vertical speed indicator, so how quickly they would increase or decrease, so that it would also tell them which way to go. And it would give them a little ping, and it would show the other airplane. And it would tell them what altitude difference 
Not what altitude they're at, what altitude difference the other airplane was. So if it was 100 feet above, 100 feet below, at the same altitude, whatever it was, it would tell them where it was, so how conflicting this traffic was. Yeah. And then if they got too close, it would start to tell the each one of the airplanes to do an action. It's called a resolution action, yep. or an RA. And it tells one airplane to climb and one airplane to descend. So that's what we're talking about in this case, is the TCAS. Yep. So 11 seconds after the captain took over control of the airplane and the first officer left his seat, the TCAS alarmed in the cockpit of the 757 because there was conflicting, possible conflicting traffic. And it alarmed saying, traffic, traffic. Just to back up a little bit and clarify, it's resolution advisory. Yes, res resolution yeah. advisory, yes. Sorry, I was like, am I wrong? No, no. it's resolution advisory, you're right. Yeah, the, the the reason they put the advisory there is because, you know, technology can fail. So yes, technology can <laughs> it's, fail. It's, it's a legal backhole. Though. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it's resolution advisory. Yeah. 14 seconds after that initial TCAS advisory, the TCAS issued a resolution advisory of descend, descend. Two seconds later, the autopilot was disconnected and the control column was pushed forward and the thrust levers were reduced, putting the airplane into a 1,500 foot per minute descent. Twelve seconds after that, the autothrottle was disconnected. So the autothrottle already had pulled thrust because the nose had dipped. So then the autothrottle was then disengaged after that, so they had manual control of the autothrottle, or the throttle as well. At 10.35 p.m. and five seconds, the first officer stated, traffic right there referring to the indication from the TCAS, so the actual indication on the screen, on the little dial, showing the traffic. So that was the first officer, so he's on his way back to his seat. The captain confirmed this, simply stating yes. Five seconds later, 14 seconds after that initial traffic warning, the TCAS issued another resolution advisory, saying increased descent, increased descent. So, telling them to start going down a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At this time, the first officer was back in his seat and putting his headset on. The control column was once again pushed forward, putting the airplane into a 2,600 foot per minute descent Ooh. 10 seconds later. At 10.35 p.m. and 14 seconds, a master caution warning sounded for two seconds in the cockpit. At 10.35 p.m. and 19 seconds, the flight crew attempted to inform the air traffic controller of their descent stating TCAS descent. However, their call was not heard, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah. The first officer then requested the captain descend hard. That was a quote. That was what he wanted him to do. Uh, I believe there was an expletive in there. Uh, it wasn't written into the report, actually. Probably. They usually don't. Yeah, probably. The control column was then pushed full forward. Two seconds later, at 10.35 p.m. and 32 seconds, the airplane collided with the intersecting traffic at 34,890 feet, striking with the vertical stabilizer, or the tail, which then separated from the fuselage, the airplane quickly lost control and began descending rapidly out of control. Several pieces, including one of the engines, separated from the airplane due to overstressing as it fell to the ground into a wooded, unpopulated area north of Überlingen, Germany. That's why it's called the Überlingen Collision. So now back up. Let's talk about the other one. You may be wondering... What about the other plane? Because the other airplane is actually far more important. Very. And interesting. And interesting. Yes, all around. We're going to talk about Bashkirian 
Airlines Flight 2937. Yep. Try saying that five times fast. Yeah, and I guarantee you've never heard of that airline before. And I guarantee I'm going to say it wrong later in this episode, so <laughs> I'm apologizing I actively advance. avoided saying it. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're all honest here. I, I made sure to say to beloved it's, every single time. It's because I believe it's from, I don't, I don't quote me on this, I'm probably going to say it all wrong, but I think they're from the Bashkaran region of Russia. Yeah, I know it's from Russia. Yes. I got the Russia. It kept <laughs> wanting me to correct it to Bashkiria. <laughs> and it kept thinking that Bashkirian is wrong. But that's the name of the airline, is Bashkirian Airlines. I have no idea. It's okay. So again, this also happened on July 1st of 2002. Duh. This, however, was a Tupolev TU-154M. There's something we've never really talked about before. Tupolev. This is a Russian-designed airplane. Mostly because uh, Russian crashes tend to have Russian reports with no English translation. Yes. Or they're not found at all. Right. And these... So this is something a little bit rare. We won't talk much about many of these airplanes, but these are actually generally Soviet-designed airplanes. And this one in particular was Soviet-designed, but actually built during the Russian era. It was built in 1995. And it is a... Largest airplane. It's comparable to a 737, but has some really weird features. It is a tri-jet, so it has three big engines on the tail, yep. and it has a T-tail. And it's it's kind of a funny-looking airplane, but it's been mostly reliable. They were used all the way up until very, very recently, actually. I think they were retired this year out of commercial service in Russia. That doesn't mean they're not flying. The... <laughs> The NATO reporting name is Careless. Careless. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good on good on NATO. They are still, however, used in military operations. So current status is in limited service. Primary users are the Russian Air Force. Yep. And the People's Liberation Army Air Force and Air Corio. Right. So there you go. So that Air Corio is the North Korean airline. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they like to pick up all the really old airplanes. Current so makes operators. Sense. So Russia. the remaining operators, Air Corio has two, mm-hmm. which and they're the last passenger airline to operate this aircraft. The Armed Forces of Kazakhstan, the Republic of Kazakhstan, has one in mm-hmm. service. The Russian Federal Security Service has two. Very specific. We'll get to that one in a second. The Russian Gormov Flight Research in- Institute has one. The Chinese People's Liberation Army Air Force has 12. Wow. The Russian Air Force has 16. The Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs has four. The Russian Navy has two. The Russian Chapilgan Siberian Scientific Research Institute of Aviation, or SIBNIA, has one. And the Russian Yuri A. Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center has one. Yeah, it's a zero-G platform. So most of them are all research, development, or Air Force. And specifically, one of the most famous ones, and the only one we've, I think we've ever seen in the United States, is the Open Skies Bird. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. It landed in Chicago last year. And it is a very curious thing, but the, the Open Skies Treaty, which I'm not going to get into that right now because we're no longer part of it, allowed basically us to go to our adversaries and them to come to us under a legal right to fly over things and collect intelligence and share it with everyone else on and the treaty. share it with everyone else on the treaty and it, it it's done where they have to file it in advance it's a well-known thing and 
Russia operates a Tu-154 in, in this role. So, and it's a colorful airplane, actually. And it landed in Chicago last year. It's really curious. I, I've never seen a Tu-154 in person, and I would like to, actually, before they're all gone. So there yeah. was our Tupolev tangent. Yes. This one had the tail number of Romeo Alpha-85816. Pretty typical of Russia to just have these really long numerical tail numbers. This was a flight from Moscow to Barcelona, but specifically it was a charter flight. We'll get to that in a minute. Barcelona. Barcelona. Barcelona, Spain. Barcelona. Sorry for everyone who's from Barcelona. We know someone from Barcelona. That's how she says Barcelona. Yes. Barcelona. The Tupolevs, specifically pretty much all of the Tupolevs in existence, aren't generally allowed to fly in the West because they don't meet Western safety standards. Yeah. Very typical. And they also don't meet system standards required for airplanes in the West, usually. But that said, there were some special circumstances they could fly in. Some places allowed them, so they were allowed to fly to Barcelona. They were actually allowed in Germany, because typically uh, East Germany used them a lot. Yeah. When there was an East Germany. When there was an East Germany. I typically like to think of uh, Tupolev as, like, the Kerbal Space Program airline. Yes. (laughs) Like like the plane manufacturer. Yeah. Because they're like, we're going to build this just enough to where it'll work. Exactly. That's pretty much it. That's why they're called careless. Yeah. Oh, boy. The captain for this flight was Captain Alexander Gross. He is 52 years old. He had about 12,000 hours total, of which 4,918 hours were on the type. Now, that's specific because the next person is why this role, the roles get a little confusing in this cockpit. Oh, yeah. The first officer was actually the pilot in command. Why? His name was Oleg Grigoriev. He was 40 years old. He had 8,500 hours, so not as many as the captain. He was not as old. And he only had 4,317 hours on the type, so less than the captain. However, However, he was the airline's chief pilot, and he was the instructor on this flight. He was doing a check flight on the captain. Wow. With uh... less experience than Uh the captain. Yep. You know... Russia. Guys, this is this is just a this is just like a good moment to say anything's possible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just you wait because it turns out there's five people in the cockpit. What? Just to make matters even more confusing. Yeah. Actually, this you'd be really surprised though because actually this crew was pretty organized and yeah. they handled things pretty well. All, All things, things considered. considered. <laughs> <laughs> So it'll get confusing when I get to terms like I'll say co-pilot, pilot in command, and commander. Right. That's the terms they used in the report. I still used captain, first officer, and then there's a co-pilot. We'll talk about him in a minute. Yeah. The navigator on this flight was Sergei Karlov. He was 50 years old. He sat between the two pilots in the middle. Kind of just behind them, yeah. facing like, the hovering, like, hovering like, over them, almost like jump seatish. Yeah. yeah, or backseat driving. Yeah, <laughs> he was the most experienced of everybody on board, actually, and everybody will talk about. Period. He had about thirteen thousand hours total, of which six thousand four hundred twenty-one hours were on the type. There was a flight engineer as well. The flight engineer mm-hmm. was Oleg Valiv. Yes, so there were two Olegs, the first officer and the flight engineer. It's a common Russian name. It is. He was 37 years old. He had 4,200 hours, and all of those were on the type, so on the TU-154. Pretty common for flight engineers. The co-pilot we were talking about 
was Murat Itkolov. He was 41 years old. He had 7,900 hours, of which 4,181 were on the type. However, he normally would have been the first officer on this flight, but he had no role at all. He was there just as a jump seater, basically, because he was actually intended to be the first officer on the way back. Oh, so he was just hitching a ride so that he could get a ride back. Yep, basically. I mean, this was a small airline, and they were operating this as a charter, which, again, we'll get to that in a minute. So his role, he didn't play any. And he was simply there, but he actually ended up being a big part of the confusion. And he he tried to help, but... I think everybody tried to help. Okay, but really, he was the most sane one in the cockpit? Yes. There's five people in the cockpit, which is not normal. There should not be five people in no, a cockpit. There were five I'm seats, sorry. but not five roles. There were only four roles Ugh. in the cockpit. Okay. So like I said, this was a charter flight. And to get to this charter flight, we have to go back a little bit. Earlier in June, in the region of Ufa, Russia, UFA, the region had been working with UNESCO to organize a trip for the region's brightest and best children to go to Barcelona for a vacation. These were children who performed above and beyond in school, athletic, and arts in the region. They were prodigies. They were prodigies. It turns out a lot of them also had very high-ranking parents for the region. Kind of has something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, two days before the accident, a group of 45 children with a few teachers boarded a bus and went to Moscow to catch their flight. The problem was that the bus took them to the wrong airport in Moscow, because there's four commercial airports in Moscow, and they took them to the wrong one, so they missed their flight. I'd be so mad. Y- yes. <laughs> the tour operator that had organized this whole thing, basically was forced to find another jet to charter for the trip. This took two days to organize. So the children went on a tour of Moscow in the meantime. They got hotels, they had to go, they went and wandered around Moscow, they got a tour of Moscow, because they weren't actually from Moscow, they were from a different region. So it was a big trip to the capital, accidentally. Finally, time had arrived for them to board their flight at Moscow's Domodedovo Airport on July 1st of 2002. A handful of other passengers were also due to board this charter flight, but not many of them, and they were not part of the tour group at all. The flight was to have 60 passengers and 9 crew. The flight crew had been off-duty for the previous 24 hours prior to the flight. The crew checked in at 8.30 p.m. local time. At 9.48 p.m. local time, the flight finally departed Moscow on its way to Barcelona. The flight plan had the airplane cruising at flight level 360, or 36,000 feet, sound familiar, at 470 knots for a 4-hour and 20-minute flight all the way to Barcelona. At 10.11 p.m. and 55 seconds, local time, over Salzburg, Austria, the air traffic controller cleared the flight direct to the... uh, Trezadingen... Sounds like a prescription you'd hear I on a commercial. <laughs> Trezadingen. Trezadingen. Your loved one has taken Trezadingen. Yeah. <laughs> to the Trezadingen VOR at flight level 360. At 10.16 p.m. in 10 seconds, the plane entered German airspace and was transferred to the Munich, the Munich radar control. At 10.29 p.m. in 54 seconds, the crew was instructed to tune to the Zurich Center on 128... 
the same frequency as the DHL flight. A few seconds later, the flight crew did so. The air traffic controller and at Zurich Center then assigned the plane a squat code of 7520. This was acknowledged by the flight crew. Six seconds later. Between 10.33 p.m. and 10.34 p.m. and 41 seconds, the crew discussed seeing traffic on their TCAS display. All flight crew, apart from the flight engineer, were involved in this discussion. So that means the co-pilot, too, who had no role. He was discussing this as well. They were trying. They were actually very actively trying to figure out where this airplane was and how much of a conflict this was actually going to be. At 10.34 p.m. and 36 seconds, the captain stated, quote, Here it is in sight, unquote. Two seconds later, quote, Look here. It indicated zero, unquote meaning that they were at the same altitude. So now they, they were pretty aware. This airplane is closing in at the same altitude, and they're like, hmm, this is precarious. Can I, can I say something yes. real quick Go about TCAS? Yes, go for it. No. One last thing like about TCAS is that it is very accurate. It when is. it says zero, it is zero. Dead zero. That, they're that means at the same altitude. They are talking to each other at the exact same altitude. And they, yes. And those discrepancies that they read, they read within like one or two feet. And yeah. they know. They, <laughs> and they, they have to because we're talking about commercial traffic, which are allowed yeah. to have very tight tolerances I, I, at very high speeds. And I'm pretty sure that's the main difference between ADSB and like TCAS yes. is how precise each one yes. is. ADSB. ADSB's not that accurate, but it does show you a lot more traffic, and it can still exactly. tell you if you're conflicting with something yeah. within a couple hundred feet. Well, yeah. and it can show you traffic. Like, we have an ADSB app. It can show you military traffic, too, because that's also collision potential. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of things that are collision potential, and ADSB is a lot more open for that kind of thing Yeah. versus TCAS. TCAS was really intended for transport category aircraft mm -hmm. traveling at flight levels at high rates of speed. With low, low tolerances. Yeah. Go in the vroom vrooms. The near, vroom vrooms. Near the other vroom vrooms. <laughs> yes. The vroom vrooms They don't the want the vroom vrooms yes. to hit the other vroom vrooms. <laughs> so, another little thing we haven't discussed much about, but it's uh, altitudes. So, if you're heading uh, westbound, you're going to be in the even altitudes. If you're heading eastbound, you're going to be in the odd altitudes. Well... But one was heading northwest, one was heading southwest. So they were both in the even altitudes, and it just happens that they were assigned 36,000 feet. Both. At 10.34 p.m. and 25 seconds to 10.34 p.m. and 55 seconds, the plane made a slight right turn, adjusting 10 degrees from a heading of 254 to 264 degrees. 10.34 p.m. and 42 seconds, the TCAS sounded traffic, traffic, which was repeated immediately by the first officer and co-pilot. They were both like, hey, traffic, traffic. They literally both repeated exactly the same thing. It's like, thank you. I didn't realize the computer right in front of me was saying that there was traffic. Which they were all already paying attention to. They already yeah. knew the traffic was there well in yeah. advance. They were like, but remember, there's traffic. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you don't now forget. Now it's warning us. There's traffic. <laughs> Honestly, again, all things considered, this was a pretty organized crew. It was, actually. They yeah. were on top of this. Yeah. Seven seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the crew to expedite descent to flight level 350, so descend 1,000 feet, referencing the, conf the conflicting traffic as the reason for this descent and why, they want why he wanted them to expedite. So he just gave them a descent call. While air traffic control was making this transmission, the first officer, mind you, the pilot in command, instructed the captain to descend as well. So the captain is the pilot flying but not the pilot in command. 
At 10.34 p.m. and 56 seconds, the control column was pushed forward, disconnecting the autopilot, and the thrust was reduced. None of the crew verbally acknowledged the descent request from the air traffic controller over the radio. That's one thing they did miss. At the same time of the initiation of the descent, the TCAS sounded, saying, Climb! Climb! The co-pilot repeated, It says climb! I'm sorry. This is still the guy with no duty. It's one yeah. of those things where it's like, hey, just so you don't forget, it's said to go up. Right. But they're descending. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because they were told to by air traffic control. But right. for the record, he's also the only one that points out that, that the TCAS is saying climb. to go the other direction. Yeah. And to to that effect, the first officer, the pilot in command, stated, quote, he is guiding us down, end quote. So in other words, he's saying, well, the air traffic controller is telling us to go down. We'll get to the psychology of this later, but there's kind of a reason why there's conflicting things happening in this cockpit. Yep. It's why you don't have five people in a cockpit at the same time. Mm, with yeah, differencing, well, in, in, with different power levels, you know what I mean? That's yes. actually not the yeah. source of anything. But yeah, actually in this, this instance, yeah, I was going to say, that's, uh, it's actually kind of mute. Uh, a moot point. Yeah, yeah a moot point. Mute. Moot. Mute. <laughs> moot. <laughs> they don't speak. Yeah. A moot point. Yeah. The co-pilot asked... Quote, descend? End quote. Literally, it's a question, question mark. mark. Yes. So that's the same guy who said, but it says to climb. At oh, 10, boy. At 10.35 p.m. in two seconds, six seconds after the climb resolution advisory and 30 seconds before the collision, the captain pulled back on the control column, stopping the descent. Then the thrust levers were simultaneously reduced. So still reducing power, but now they've leveled off. This actually means that the airplane is still descending, though. The discussion about whether to climb or descend from the from the crew was interrupted by air traffic controller once again, instructing the crew to expedite their descent to flight level 350 once more. So the air traffic controller still told him again, keep going down. The first officer immediately acknowledged this instruction, so now there was an acknowledgement to the air traffic control. The air traffic controller then informed the crew about the other traffic, saying that they were at flight level 360 at 2 o'clock position. Which I couldn't put in my head because they weren't. No, so he got this confused. Yes. Because I believe the other way around. Yes. Yeah. It was the other airplane that had them at the two o'clock position, which actually, as a matter of fact, the first officer then said, quote, where is it to the other crew members? And the co-pilot, the guy with no duty, responded, here on the left side. Yeah. Because it's at their 10 o'clock. Not the two o'clock. Which, on their TCAS display, also showed to the left, so they knew. And they had already visually confirmed on the display at this point. Yes. Their rate of descent at the time was 1,500 feet per minute. The navigator then stated, quote, It is going to pass beneath us, end quote, simultaneously to the air traffic controller's previous call. So, there was a lot of mixed things going on. Immediately after, the captain pushed on the control column again, increasing the descent rate to 2,000 feet per minute, as the, basically as the air traffic controller requested. For the following 17 seconds, the flight made another turn to the right, another 10 degrees, to a heading of 274 degrees. Now they are approaching at a right angle. Yes, a perfect 90 degrees. At 10.35 p.m. and 24 seconds, the TCAS sounded, quote, increase climb, increase climb. So, go up faster, which they're not going up at all. The co-pilot repeated this, saying, It says climb! 
Five seconds before the collision, the control column was pulled back in unison with a minor increase in the thrust lever settings. Then one second before the collision, the control column was pulled back hard and the thrust levers were abruptly increased to full. The airplane was in a right bank of about 10 degrees with the nose flat and increasing angle upward when the tail of the 757 struck the left side of the fuselage, separating the fuselage into several large pieces at an altitude of 34,890 feet. As the tail traveled through the Tupolev, it removed large portions of the right wing and ruptured multiple fuel tanks, causing a large explosion in midair on the Tupolev, effectively blowing it apart. It fell nearly straight down from the collision site. As it fell, all the crew likely fell unconscious due to the g-forces of the falling forward section of the fuselage. The portions of airplane fell along the open German countryside to the northeast of Überlingen, nearly striking a house and a school. Now, they're both talking to an air traffic controller. So, we gonna get into the air traffic controller. We're gonna talk about the air traffic controller now. This poor guy. We're going to talk about Peter Nielsen. Peter Nielsen was the air traffic controller in control of the area of the collision at the time of the accident. He worked for a company called Skyguide, which operated with minimal staff at night. Skyguide was a private air traffic controlling company. Yep. This does not happen in the United States and hasn't for an extremely long time. Because we're entirely publicly funded air traffic control system. Yep. There's been attempts to make it privatized. Hasn't worked. That's not going to happen. It's not going <laughs> to happen. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. But in other countries around the world, there are privatized air traffic control systems. And these, I believe, were Swiss, right? So they these were, were Swiss run. Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. Swiss center. So, yeah, yeah, they were actually operating, operating Zurich Center. Yeah. And he was... Peter Nielsen was very specifically in charge of a sector of northern Switzerland all the way up to southern Germany. So he was actually in charge of this little area of Germany that they were flying through. Traffic that evening was very quiet, as normal, and there were only a few people staffed, of which only two were actually air traffic control personnel. This was standard procedure, and it was also standard procedure that one of the two air traffic controllers was allowed to staff both radar positions in order for one staff member to go on break. Okay, so that's why he was at a position where he had to... Yes, so one of the staff members was on break. I'll get a hitch more into that later. Yes, same. <laughs> that same. <laughs> so Nielsen's co-worker went on break. Nielsen was left in charge of both positions, which were a few feet apart, while his co-worker took a break. Which, by the way, that's crazy to me. Because when I pictured it in my head, going over this accident, mm -hmm. right? I would think, like, the logical thing would be one screen, two screen right next to each other. But he literally had to roll between the two. Yeah, because there were two different positions for two different air traffic controllers in two different places. So he had to yeah. roll back and forth between these two. And the reality is, is we're only going to talk about four airplanes he had to take care of, and that's about all he had to take care of. But those four airplanes were on two different screens. Yeah. So yep. this actually changed the way his workload worked. If there were four on one radar, meh. Easy peasy. No, easy yeah, stuff. no problem. Yeah. But he was having to talk to different people on different at different positions at different on different radar screens. On different frequencies. On different frequencies. This just made everything 
far more difficult. Nielsen was left in, char in charge of both of the positions. He was not overwhelmed at the time, but shortly after he took over both positions, several maintenance workers came in to inform him that they were given the authorization to perform regular maintenance on the radars. And they informed him that this may affect the speed of his radar displays. In the process of the maintenance, the phone lines were also disconnected unexpectedly and unannounced to Peter Nielsen. He had no idea, but his phones didn't work. Yep. He was also given a self-briefing on the extent of the maintenance. But it was and very so was, minimal. So was the other controller, and they didn't read it. Yeah. At first, he figured that the maintenance would be no issue. He really didn't have much traffic to deal with. But what he did not know is that this meant that the two-minute imminent collision warning built into his radar system was also disabled. Wasn't working. So Great. The, yeah. This was one heck of a perfect storm. Yeah. So uh, to touch on base on that a little bit, that, that system is basically, it, it's a pre-brief uh, that basically says, um, hey, you have two planes. Somewhere in the vicinity that are pointed at each other right. and going at some speed, they're going to hit each other eventually. Right. And on most radar displays, it'll even allow them to like flash a very specific yeah. color or whatever, just so that they know these are approaching at rapid speed. Yeah. And I'll get into that a little bit more after this. Right. So basically, because I didn't, <laughs> the whole radar system yeah. is able to do the calculation of, hey, these airplanes are two minutes apart and approaching rapidly to the exact same spot. So it's supposed to tell them this, and it was disabled. But Peter didn't know that. The two flights appeared on Nielsen's normal workstation. But at the same time, an Aero Lloyd flight was approaching one of the airports nearby and was making constant calls to Nielsen through his co-worker's station. This meant that Nielsen was switching back and forth between the stations frequently. Nielsen wanted to pass off the Aeroloid flight to another air traffic control facility that could have handled it because it was also on their radar, but he tried phoning them three separate times with no way to get through, not knowing that the phone lines were disconnected. This uh, air traffic control center was Friedrichshafen. Yes, Friedrich, Friedrichshafen. That's Friedrichshafen. so German. But it's, it's actually... The German of German. I think it was actually in Switzerland, but it was in the German part of Switzerland. What? I think it's Zurich's airport. It is a city on the north shoreline of Lake Constance in southern Germany. Okay, so it's... Near the borders of both Switzerland and Austria. Okay. So it's German. Okay, so it's in Germany. Okay. He was trying to pass the airplane off to this... Friedrichshafen. Friedrichshafen. <laughs> Here, I'm gonna... It doesn't matter. He's trying to pass them off to another air traffic control facility, and he tried to call them three separate times, but he didn't know the phone line was down, so it didn't work. He then tried... A standby telephone, a second one, and that didn't work either, still not knowing that the phone line wasn't working. At this time, the 757 and the Tupolev are about two minutes apart. And again, no warning. At that time, another air traffic controller at another facility that had both airplanes on their radar got a warning that the two airplanes were of imminent danger of colliding. So somebody else got the two-minute warning yeah. that he didn't get. Uh, more on that later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That air traffic controller tried to phone the Zurich Center, Nielsen's facility, to inform him of the warning. But, but the phones weren't working. But like we said, he wasn't able to get through as well. Oh, great. Just to add to the mess. 
International law also forbid this other air traffic controller from contacting the flights as they were not under his control or his frequency. Which, I guess I kind of understand that, because... If somebody else started controlling your airplanes, and they weren't at your facility, that doesn't make any sense at all. No. Because that just just so is chaos. Yeah. If you already have a plan laid out, you don't want these people messing with it. Right. So, spoiler alert, I didn't mention this in my part, but investigators did determine that this controller did the right thing by not saying anything, because mm-hmm. it would have sowed more chaos. Yes. And... Because that wasn't the controller they were talking to. Right. Which makes sense. And if he had started giving them commands to go up or down... It It was against regulations. Yes, and it could have contradicted the TCAS and or the air traffic controller that was actually controlling them. And it would have caused... Could have caused more confusion. Right. So... Nielsen, at that time, came back to his monitor and noticed the closing airplanes... He then made a call to the Tupolev to expedite a descent down to flight level 350, but received no response. He called again a moment later, and the flight crew responded that time that they were descending. Thinking that at that point that he had averted the collision, he returned his attention to the Aeroloid flight, which was calling him again from the other station constantly. Dear Lord, what is their problem? Well, they're making descents, and they're they're getting really close to the airport that they were approaching, so they needed all sorts of instructions on descent, altitudes, and speeds, and, and they were trying to get uh, vectors for an approach, and it was just, it was chaos. That sounds like a full mess. Yes. That's why he was trying to hand them off to another air traffic controller that was more apt to handle that area. Right. But he couldn't get through. Ding, it normally ding. was... It was too early for him technically to pass him off, but he could have. And he didn't want to do it without informing the other air traffic controller first. At this time, another flight, a Thai Airways flight, began making radio calls to Nielsen as well, adding to the workload. Four airplanes, not much in reality, but between two stations, ooh, chaos. And you you have two airplanes that potentially are going to hit each other. Right. And your radar is also not working properly. 100%, right? And the phones aren't and working. the phones aren't working. And you're alone. Terrible. Nielsen didn't realize that around this time the two airplanes collided. He came back over to his primary screen to find two airplanes not responding to his calls and not moving on radar. This is a controller's absolute worst nightmare. Yes. He immediately left the control room. His coworker took over. But Nielsen never returned to an air traffic control room ever again. Nope. The two airplanes collided at a crossing speed of nearly 800 miles per hour in the dark, making it nearly impossible for them to see one another until it was far, far too late. The 757 crashed four nautical miles north of the collision site, and the Tupolev went straight down. This was the worst aviation accident in Germany since World War II. All 71 people, 60 passengers, 9 crew on the Tupolev, and then the 2 crew on the Boeing, perished in this accident. The tail section of the Tupolev ended up crashing near a school. Much of both airplanes ended up in wooded areas, but some portions of the right wing of the Tupolev ended up in a street near a house. Many of the passengers on board the Tupolev were scattered throughout the fields, where the airplane ended up. 28 children, as a matter of fact, were found in one field alone. And the Boeing was scattered in a forest. 
Thankfully, neither one of them hit anybody or anything on the ground other than a road. Dirt. And some dirt. Yeah. And uh, maybe some trees with the DHL. Yes. Needless to say, the Tupolev, because it exploded in flight, came down in a very fiery ball, seen by several witnesses, and they were the first to report this accident. And because they came down in a fiery and big ball of flames, they were scattered throughout a very large area, and the airplane practically burned entirely. It was spread, I believe the episode said, 20 kilometers by 2 kilometers. Yeah, it was a 40 square kilometer area, basically, because it was 20 by 2. So it was a very large area that it was spread. And then the DHL managed to pretty much make it all in one piece apart from one engine separated. Still ended up in the area, though, that the DHL flight crashed in. And then the tail was left nearby with the Tupolev. This investigation was performed by the German Aviation Accident Authority called Bundesstelle für Flugunfalluntersuchung. Oh, good God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't going to try to pronounce that one out because I don't know German. Yeah. Yeah, that thing. A.K.A. the BFU, A.K.A. the German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accidents Investigation. Fun fact, the Swiss one is also the BFU. That's not confusing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> also, the third word of that in its entirety means aircraft accident investigation. And it's in, a long word. In one yeah. word. <laughs> it's like a 30-character word. Hold on. I'm going to say it. I'm going to have it say it again. Just that word? Yes. Flugunfalluntersuchung. That whole... Flugunfalluntersuchung. That, that whole word is actually three words in English. It's aircraft accident investigation. Yeah. The more oh. you know. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> so I will inform... I will say that they are the investigators of the BFU. All black boxes were recovered from both planes, though the first FDR from the Tupolev was a spare that was recovered, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so they had to go back and find the actual one. A spare? Yeah, they carried a spare. Why? You know, just in case. I don't know. But (laughs) But it's not hooked up to anything, so what's the point? It really threw investigators off. (laughs) They're like, yeah, we got all four. Is is it like in case they have to... Put it in maintenance somewhere, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, the FDR is working. Here's another one right I here." Guess. I guess I know. literally don't know. They that's... just said they had to go back and get the actual one. That's real dumb. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's dumb. Um, they were able to read out all of them by the fifth day of the investigation, though. Fortunate. Yeah, the FDR or the flight data recorder from the 757 was an eight-track that recorded 335 parameters, and it had one second of usable data after the collision. The rest was too badly damaged since, you know, the tail was the collision point. Yeah. I'm really amazed that either airplane had any data after the accident. Oh, just you wait. Oh, I know. The CVR was a four-track and recorded nine seconds after the collision, but all of the CVR was heavily damaged and had to be repaired in order to be read, which means that they repaired it in five days. Pretty impressive. Fortunate. The FDR on the Tupolev was a 28-track with 107 parameters and was almost completely undamaged. Wow. Fortunate. Yeah. (laughs) It recorded three and a half seconds after the collision. The CVR of the Tupolev was a 4-track, which recorded almost two minutes after the collision. That just blows my mind. Yeah. It really does. I don't know what it recorded, considering that part separated. Yep. It, it just nothing. <laughs> it didn't. Well, it probably didn't even record that. It just recorded silence for two minutes. But it also had to be repaired because it was heavily damaged. Mm-hmm. 
So the first part of the analysis was the operations, and basically they waited to do their investigation until they had all of the black box data, and then they said, you there, you're going to do operations, you're going to do human factors. And that's how they split up their investigation. Mm -hmm. I don't really cover the human factors portion. On the DHL flight, investigators analyzed the contents of both the CVR and FDR. They determined that the first officer would not have left to use the bathroom if he had seen the other plane. So he had not seen it prior to leaving. He did so at 10.34 and 30 seconds. 12 seconds later is when a traffic advisory was issued from the TCAS, but it's unclear if the pilot in command confirmed this visually on the instrument panel. 14 seconds after that advisory, TCAS issued the descend command, at which time the control column was pushed forward and engine thrust was pulled back. Nine seconds later, the CVR picked up the co-pilot, saying, traffic right there, which the investigators considered to be the positive identification, but the co-pilot didn't even have his headset on yet from returning from the bathroom. Right. That was picked up on the cockpit microphone, not his individual microphone. It took 12 seconds for them to reach the required descent rate of 1,500 feet per minute. At 10.35 and 10 seconds, TCAS said to increase descent, which the captain complied with, and four seconds later, the master caution warning went off on the CVR, probably because they left their cruising altitude. Yeah. Wasn't anything more than that. They didn't have some kind of mechanical failure. They were just leaving their set altitude. They were leaving all the... The airplane was suddenly in a situation it's not used to, and it wasn't assigned to. Now, here's my little bit of possible failed CRM. Just after that, both of the DHL pilots called into the Zurich Air Traffic Control, but then just the co-pilot finished the call, saying that they had begun a TCAS descent. Right, instead of keeping the call to one pilot. But minor, that's pretty minor. It's pretty minor. Because they still called Air Traffic Control. They wanted to make sure that that got out of the way. However, investigators said that they took too long to send this message. It was 23 seconds after the resolution advisory of descend, descend. But they also acknowledged that the communication channel was blocked. So when they tried to call, somebody else was already talking. That's why the call was never heard. The Tupolev, as it turns out. Yep. They got stepped on. They did. They got, they stepped, got on. stepped on. That's what it's called in aviation. Yeah. You get stepped on. <laughs> you get stepped on. That's the formal term. So it turns out, yes, they had been stepped on by the Tupolev transmissions for the first half of their transmission. And then the second half was covered up by the Aerofloid flight Mm -hmm. so the controller didn't hear any of their transmission he said that in interviews and then they also confirmed that in recordings that he didn't hear any of it yeah he wasn't present and listening to their call at all two seconds before the collision the control column was fully forward after the co-pilot said descend hard which investigators assume is when they actually saw the tupolev probably and how close it was now for the tupolev All of the crew had TCAS training except for the flight engineer, and all of their training was according to national regulations. Which is in Russia, so... Yep. You take that as you will. To be fair, this actually went exactly the way it should. They all noticed the TCAS warning and what were planning on what to do with it, except the flight engineer. It wasn't trained. Here's the thing about Russian regulations, as opposed to international regulations, which were also kind of weird. We'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, the airline did not have TCAS-equipped flight simulators. Yeah, Bruh. that makes it hard to plan yeah. and train. Yeah. So their training was sitting on the ground in a cockpit that had TCAS, but not actually flying the plane. Yep. 
So the so they crew, can look at the system. So the crew didn't have any practical TCAS experience. They're like, this is what should happen, but we can't actually show it to you, so here's what you should do, but you don't actually get to do it. So then and also, in times like this flight, where there was an instructor teaching the captain, this was also an active duty time of learning how to use the TCAS. Yeah. And not exactly the best time to figure out when it's going wrong. Yeah! yeah. Well, Additionally, TCAS was not mandatory in Russia, only on Russian planes that flew to places where TCAS is required. To put in perspective the frequency of those kinds of flights, in 2002, the year that this happened, before the accident, the captain had only flown 12 such flights, and the instructor had only flown four. Again, why is he an instructor? I don't know. No one knows. Also, I was going to say that I'm kind of surprised this plane, being a Russian plane, had TCAS, but now that makes sense. It's only on the planes that fly to places that require it. Otherwise, you can't right. fly there. Like right. Barcelona. Yeah. So investigators looked at the training and manuals that the crew did have and found them to be rather ambiguous mm-hmm. when it came to conflict between air traffic control and TCAS. It said, quote, ATC measures are the main and major condition of collision ad- avoidance, end quote, and didn't consider TCAS commands to be a priority in that situation. But it also said that any maneuvers that contradict a TCAS command were prohibited. Great. Yikes. Well, I mean, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Because you're mm-hmm. having ATC, and ATC, to be fair, is the the person that is supposed to tell you, hey, you have traffic coming in, you need to go this way. Yeah. And that's what happened previous to this before TCAS, right? And then you have this onboard computer telling you, you need to climb to get out of the way. Now, if they had understood a little more about TCAS... I think they would have understood why it told them to climb. Yes. Because TCASs talk to each other, like we talked about. So the one that was talking to the plane went, oh, we're going down. So the plane went, oh, we need to go up. But also they're getting like weird things from, because no one was talking to the air traffic controller from the other flight because they, when they tried to talk to the controller. They got stepped on. They got stepped on. (laughs) So he he didn't know that they were already descending to get out of the way. Exactly. Now, however, amidst all this, I'm going to get in, this is my slight little human factors bit, um, and it's actually more cultural than anything, is that Russians are more inclined to listen to a person than technology. Yep. That makes sense. So when you hear one thing from a person and one thing from a robot, I think we as Americans are more inclined to listen to the robot because people are dumb. <laughs> I mean, true. you're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and okay, so whereas Russians are the flip, right? And at I, this time and instance, this is a little bit of human factors too, and I'm sure you'll talk about this. But there's a difference between listening to a robot go descend, descend, versus a person going expedite your descent. Yeah, yeah. there's a big difference in your brain when you hear somebody. Yeah. Urgently giving you a message versus a machine giving you a little arbitrary voice. But that also contributes, I feel like the cultural is more of why the entire crew basically didn't address the fact that TCAS was saying climb, except for the one co-pilot who was actually paying attention and blessed that person. He wasn't in charge of anything. Yeah, Yeah. he was just there. He had literally no authority in that cockpit at all because he was... But basically they entirely discredited the TCAS advisory in favor of their traffic controller. Mm -hmm. Which, again, to be fair, it makes sense why they do that. Especially the fact that they have so little actual training on TCAS. Yeah. That they were like, like, oh, well, this person's telling me I need to go down, so we're going to go down. Yeah. Yeah. 
At 10.33 and 18 seconds, the Russian crew noticed the other plane on the TCAS display when they were 27 nautical miles apart. One minute later, the captain confirmed that they were on the same flight level by saying, here, it is showing us zero, which refers to the altitude difference indicator on the TCAS screen. TCAS issued a traffic advisory six seconds later, both orally and visually, and the crew exclaimed out loud that they had visual contact with the 757, completing one step of their procedure. Seven seconds later, the air traffic control officer said to descend to flight level 350, although the instructor was already doing so before that radio transmission ended, and autopilot was switched off and thrust reduced. But at the same time as the radio transmission ended and the plane was beginning to descend, TCAS said, climb, climb. Then verbal confusion ensued, which resulted in the control column being pulled up. The investigator said this was probably to reduce the rate of climb to be less steep, though they also said that this could have been with intent to climb. But they're not 100% sure, so they stuck with the former. Right. It's yeah. hard to say. Yeah. I mean, they're really getting conflicting information, so it's like... Well, and you can't really tell someone's intent if they don't verbalize do, it. Yeah, they yeah. don't tell, talk about it Yeah, and then follow through. Well, and the captain's the one flying, right? The captain, yes, was technically pilot flying. Yeah, so, I mean, he could have made that decision for any reason. And I don't know. So we know here in the States how CRM works. I don't know how that is in Russia. It still should have been the same because they were following ICAO recommendations. Yeah. which That doesn't mean that they are, though. Like yeah, the, but, the, Well, but the thing is, is actually, as a crew, they were pretty good, yeah. actually. Yeah. They, they just didn't verbalize that one little thing. It's like, hey, they didn't say, I'm pulling up or I'm leveling off. They just pulled up. Yeah. Right. But it didn't have the it didn't cause them to not descend. They were still descending, just not as steeply. Right. They were still arguing when the controller said to expedite descent to flight level 350 because the crew never actually responded to the first call. They just argued amongst themselves and never said, "Hey, we'll do that." Right. That's a breakdown of crew resource management. Yeah. Yeah. Comes up every episode. Five people in the cockpit, <laughs> not one of them could respond to that message. Yeah. yeah. The crew then pushed the control column forward again. In looking at the flight operations manual, investigators found that it is not mandatory to obey TCAS. In fact, it literally says, albeit translated, that it's a, quote, recommendation to the crew. Oh my gosh. Remember how I said that's a legal backhole? That's yeah. exactly what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it also says it is prohibited to carry out any maneuver contrary to TCAS. That's yeah. completely contradictory. Yeah. Both of those are contradictory statements. Mm-hmm. Five because seconds. It's, it's there for in the event that TCAS actually fails, which it really right. hasn't. Right. Uh, all things considered. Yeah, really TCAS is actually a very efficient system. Yeah, but in the event it does. They want that legal the, thing. The back hole. Yeah. This thing that's that the person, the you can't company sue who me. develops it. Yeah. yeah, says, yeah. You can't sue me if it doesn't work because technically it's, it's an advisory. It's an, a recommendation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a recommendation that you should quote unquote take seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take seriously and don't die. Yeah. Five seconds prior to collision, the pilot flying pulled up but did so too late. Now investigators turn to air traffic control. When the controllers arrived for their shifts, they did not know about the maintenance work for the evening. They were provided documents to self-brief. Which we talked about they didn't read. They opted yep. not to do so, despite their duty schedule and work contracts allowing them time to. But that didn't really matter since the documents didn't even say how the work would accre- would affect the availability of their equipment. Oh, that's nice. So what's the point of giving them a briefing? <laughs> hey, there's going to be work done. 
Yeah. That's basically cool. what Here's all the yeah, work yeah. that's yeah. going to be done, but we're not going to tell you how it affects you as a controller and how it affects your radar. So in the analysis, I did not read anything that said what the ep- the Mayday episode said, where the workers came in and said, hey, your radar is going to be a little bit slow, and we're working on the phones and mm-hmm. all this. Like, I, I didn't see I, anything. I'll get into what they meant by the, the radar is going to be slow. Well, yeah, but I, didn't... I did actually see something in the report where they said that the maintenance personnel okay, stopped to talk didn't. to them. Yes, they just in, informed them in that they were going Christie's to begin their portion work. portion that she reads, which, by the way, is it's the analysis point yes. portion. All they really did was come she in and say, hey, we're going to start our work. Yeah. Thanks. That's basically it. <laughs> Thanks so much for that very informational briefing. So, after the maintenance work started and the traffic volume decreased, one of the controllers, quote, retired to rest in the lounge. Normally, he would have returned to the control room early in the morning when air traffic increases, unless unusual circumstances would require his presence earlier. The spatial distance between the lounges and the control room prevents a quick alert of the second controller in conjunction with an immediate appearance, end quote. So he went to go take a nap and was too far to yell at. And this is actually a a regulation that's actually controlled by management there. What? Um, yep. Yeah, management was aware of this um, in practice yes. and, and was, was okay with it. It was They were participating in it. <laughs> Let me see. He literally went to go take a nap and the room was too far away for Peter Nielsen to be like, Hey! I need your help. <laughs> so So the rest part, so to be fair, they're they're at a facility very late at night, right? So yeah. I and, and and traffic's gonna be slow, period. Yeah. But and I understand taking a rest period, but taking a nap It's to actually me, it was part of their That just yeah. seems so weird to me. So it's not even that that bothers me so much as he opted to do it while maintenance was being done. And that yeah. was never actually addressed. In the report. Especially since they didn't know what would happen due to the maintenance going on, you know? And it seems like investigators never faulted him, like, that individual particularly for making the choice, hey, maintenance is being done, maybe I should stay here. They never faulted him for making the opposite decision, which I feel the opposite of. I would have yelled at him, but that's just me. Well, and oh, so to be devil's advocate, right? He didn't know how that would affect the radar. He didn't yeah. know the phones would be out because even the briefing that they didn't read uh, <laughs> didn't <laughs> didn't say that that would happen, right? So I mean, they had a small conversation and I think only Peter had that conversation from what Nick said before and I could be wrong, right? But he didn't understand the extent. The extent of what would happen due to maintenance. Right, right. However, is it great to have one person covering two screens, scrolling, no. like literally having to roll between the two in a wheelie chair, right? Right. Yeah. Because they're across from each other while having maintenance, while the phones aren't working, probably not a great idea. Right. See, uh, the guy that went to go take a nap, I feel like his mindset was, oh, well, you know, you're only going to get four planes. Right. We're, so, and, and... Even specifically, I can read to you what it says in the report here. Oh, okay. It says the controller... So this is a quote from the report. The controller on the second night shift retires to one of the lounges once traffic flow decreases. This is done in accordance with an internal arrangement between the controllers, which is known to and tolerated by the management. He usually reappears in the control room in the morning once traffic flow increases. As the lounges are beyond calling distance from the workstations, the controller has to be called by phone if he is needed at the workstation. Which he can't do because the phones aren't working. Yeah. So this is great. 
And you can't yeah. leave. He. It's not like Peter can just leave his station unattended. Nope. So this meant that the remaining controller, Peter, had three simultaneous roles. Radar planning controller, radar executive controller, and supervisor. Yep. Can I talk to your supervisor? I am the supervisor. (laughs) Yeah, so that's actually up here. And it says, specifically, during the night shift, normally two controllers and two assistants work at Zurich Center. This number of staff members results from the staff members from the southern sector, whatever, whatever, whatever. Systems and finish work at 21. Normally, the controllers do two successive night shifts. In this system, the senior controller has also the assumed task of supervisor. So he was juggling between three roles at this point. Because at this point, he was also the most senior person technically there. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. This was a common practice at this facility to make night shifts more, quote unquote, comfortable. Oh, get over it. They would trade off who was napping, basically. So, okay. <laughs> and management was okay with it. To be fair, I am an American. We work a lot. A lot yeah. more than Europeans, turns out. Mostly. Uh, <laughs> shade. That's a lot of shade. That's a lot, That's of, a lot shade. of international shade I just heard. Is it? Because really, we're workaholics. Yeah. That's and that's true. bad. Yeah. It's yeah. bad. I'm not saying that, that our might be shade process on us. is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. It might be shade on us. Because it seems weird to me that someone would just go take a nap in the middle of their shift. But... It's pretty I normal mean, in a lot of cultures, normal. actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's I normal mean, in Japanese culture. It's normal in a lot of cultures, actually. Spanish culture. But yeah, I too. think... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have a name for that, and it's not just a nap. That's like a six-hour, I'm off of work, screw this. <laughs> I think, though, if you're going to have that happen, you should have three rotating shifts instead of two. Because then one person has a backup in in place in case something happens. Like what happens if Peter had a family emergency happen and he had to leave and he couldn't call anybody, you know? Right. So theoretically there were two assistants there as well. And actually one of them was nearby and was helping, but they don't have any ATC roles. They don't know how to do any air traffic control. They're just like, they're just there. Like kind of looking at the screens going, Oh, these two blips here are, uh, are yeah. planes. Yeah, those, those are planes. Look at those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, don't, that's, cool. that's basically <laughs> what they're there for. It's not their job to interpret or give commands yeah. at all. They have no rule or anything there. Which, that's good, but I think there should be another controller there just in case. Like, what if mm-hmm. Peter had to go to the bathroom? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, well, he, that, you know what I mean? He Theoretically, he could have asked that assistant to go get his coworker, bring him back, and then he could have gone to the bathroom. I would have been so upset. I would have been like, I have to pee now. Yeah. Sorry, this got way off track. (laughs) But I'm trying I'm trying to say that I think I understand that first of all, we we live in different cultures and this is weird to me because I'm an American and and we're workaholics and we work all the time and I would never be able to nap in the middle of a of a work day, right? But that doesn't mean that it wasn't weird. Weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I still think that there should have been another person there, you know. Yes, just just in case. Investigators address. Great. <laughs> now, as the two accident planes were approaching at exactly right angles, the controller was trying to get the A320 to Friedrichshafen, Friedrichshafen, at the adjacent desk, but was having difficulty using the phones because of maintenance. Thus, he neglected the impending collision, but also didn't know it. Because maintenance inhibited the Optical Short-Term Collision Alert, or STCA. Yeah. I don't know if there's actually, like, a word for that abbreviation, or it's just STCA. I'm sure there is. It's just STCA. Okay. Yeah. It's not, like, Sitka or something? No. (laughs) 
Investigators also nitpicked his verbiage on the radio calls, saying that he should have said immediately instead of expedite, and given more precise calls of conflicting traffic. He also couldn't give the most immediate altitude information, however, because the radar was refreshing slower due to maintenance. So I'm assuming that means the radar wasn't spinning as fast. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably. Get, uh, yeah, I'll get You'll into get it. How, yeah. how all he's that our stuff. air traffic Great. control he's our, he's guru. He's our buddy. When we go into findings and recommendations, he's going to help out because yeah. there's a lot buddy. I don't get. Yeah. <laughs> now, once he saw the Tupolev descending, he turned back to the A320, though he could still see the other two planes on the adjacent desk. He only needed to be at that desk for radio transmissions, but he wasn't focused on them the way that he should have been. By the time he turned back, the collision had already happened. Because he wasn't concentrating on the Tupolev earlier and was so focused on the A320, his directions and timing did not allow for sufficient vertical separation. Quote, it is the BFU's opinion that the controller was not in a position to safely execute the transferred and additional assumed tasks. End quote. They blame management and quality assurance of the facility for not having sufficient staffing. That which, sounds about right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> which in the Mayday episode we watched, they actually had an interview with the spokesperson for the company. Sky Guide. It's for Sky Guide. And he said, he's like, and we, we have to take the fault for that. He's like, that's our fault. It is. We understand that. Great. He's like, there's no other way around that, which is good. At least they took the blank. Now, this is my little side blip, and then I'll be done. Some pilots listening might be asking, well, why didn't TCAS issue a reversal? A reversal can be generated if a coordinated resolution advisory is contrary to TCAS command. Basically, you planned with ATC, we're going to do this instead of listening to TCAS. But since it's run by a computer, it waits for the following conditions before issuing a reversal, and these are quotes or have been edited for clarity. The calculated distance at the critical point of approach must be greater in the new direction than the initial direction and must be greater than 100 feet. Two, the altitude difference between the planes must have already exceeded 100 feet in the new direction. That one's key. Three, a reversal must wait until nine seconds after the initial resolution advisory. Four, it must be more than four seconds until collision. Because not all of these conditions were met, a reversal was not issued. As a matter of fact, only one of those was really the key one that stopped it from happening, yep. and that was the 100-foot difference. Yep. They were both descending, and the problem was, is even though they had different descent rates, they were at no point in time less than were more than 100 foot in distance apart. Yeah. So Altitude-wise, vertically. Because you had one yes. plane yes. that vertically. kept going down. Yeah. And you had another plane that kind of like leveled off and then went back down right. and leveled off again. But they then, were still yeah. within 100 feet of each other the whole time yeah. vertically. Otherwise, a reversal would have happened and this whole thing could have been avoided. Right. At any point in time, if the Tupolev had leveled off or listened to the air traffic controller, it's likely the TCAS would have reversed. Yep. Break. Break it, break. Break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. Hi, friends. Guess what? I get to cover findings. Woo! And, I didn't have to do it. <laughs> and causes and recommendations. So we're going to kind of flip through the first couple sections. 
because it's like the first section has a, a bunch of bullet points about how the planes were certified. We know that. And it to talks, be fair, their like findings are like they're, they're extensive. Very extensive. Yeah. This next one's about the accident, which we already know what happened. So I'm going to skip that one too. Flight crews were certified, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm going to skip that one. And then flight operations, like they were trained, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to skip that one too. So if you want to go into the report, the report's on the website. It's always the first link under research. It's always our primary source. Please, 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 if you want to like read through those on your own, feel free. But there's a lot of ones that have to do with air traffic control and um, the TCAS system that I thought were more important than those. So <laughs> we're going to start with air traffic control, or ATC. The investigators found that the accident occurred over German territory, obviously crashed in Uberlingen, in accordance with a letter of agreement... LOA, ACC Zurich. That's Zurich Center, the where the air traffic controller worked. Yep. Was responsible for the air traffic control in this area. Okay, the management of the air navigation service company had implemented a new safety policy dated the twenty third of October two thousand one. These principles show that a safety culture was to be evolved in which managers and employees were aware of their critical importance. For safe operations, organizational steps to implement these principles were also taken. The process to realize the new safety culture was, however, still underway. So, Jeez. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, going to preface Z's. this now. They don't use Zs in this report. They use Ss instead. So Except I might for say, Zurich. Yeah. <sighs> I might say some things incorrectly because my disability, my, my learning disability would cause it to do so. So... Yeah. Sectorization work was carried out within ACC Zurich, so Zurich Center, in order to rearrange the control sectors in the night, I'm guessing on the night, from 1 to the 1st to the 2nd of July 2002. Mm -hmm. During this time, the radar system was operated in the fallback mode, and the separation minimum had been increased from 5 to 7 nautical miles. In doing so, the... MV-9800 radar computer was not available to the controllers. Therefore, one, no automatic correlation of the flight targets was possible. And two, the optical STCA was not displayed anymore. And we talked about that. Yeah, that's the whole separation thing not working. It didn't have any minimum idea of how far apart airplanes were and when to give a warning. Yeah. Right. The direct zone connections with the adjacent ATC units were not available to the controller of the Zurich Center during the time from 9.23 to 9.34. Which is in Zulu time, so Zulu. that's actually an hour later. So it's actually 10.23 10. to 10.34. Yes, yeah. which was just prior to the accident. An automatic changeover of incoming calls to the bypass system was not in existence because the phones weren't working. At 10, to be 34, the first of a total of four calls, three calls from UAC Karlsruhe, Karlsruhe, and one call from Frankenschaffen. Friedrichshafen. 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 Oh boy, German. <laughs> was registered. It's by the way, so, it's very close to Uberlingen. These by the way. calls had not been answered. So Karlsruhe was that other 
air traffic controller that says, hey, I can see this collision's going to happen, and I'm trying to call you. Ring, ring, ring. But couldn't. But you're not answering. Right, because their phones were down. Right. There were written directives concerning the accomplishment of work. However, they did not include explanations about the effects of the work would have on the availability of technical equipment. So they didn't know what was going on with the equipment. That was a weird way of writing that. Yeah, it was a weird way of writing that. The Center of Competence, or the COC, did not know about the sectorization work. An assessment to minimize risks did not take place. Right. So they didn't know about the maintenance going on. Besides the technicians, three additional colleagues were present in the CIR, which is... Uh, Common IFR room. Okay. One, one of the managers to support the ATCO. Which is Air Traffic Control Officer. Okay. One SYMA. The system manager. And one controller to support the technicians. The ATCO did not know about the tasks of these colleagues, which I feel like is like breakdown of management in general. It's one of those things of I'm in charge of you, but you don't get to know what I do, like what my responsibilities are. Mm, right. Okay. The sectorization work had not been coordinated with the adjacent ATC units, which I feel like is super dangerous. Yeah, I think this is one of those times where they could have given that exception to some of the rules with like these other air traffic controllers. Yeah, where it's like, hey, our radar's rotating at a slower rate. If you see something, say something. Yeah, or everything's just not working properly. Or our phones are going to be down right. if you just see so something. you know. Help us out. Shoot an email. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do us something. Or something, because yeah. they didn't have smartphones in 2002. Shoot me a text immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Were we texting at that time? No, and they probably wouldn't at an air traffic control center. No. Anyways. It's not an effective means of communication. <laughs> not back then, it wasn't. They probably no, would have no. found a way to communicate, though, that yeah. wasn't by phone, I would think. But you never know, because they didn't know. According to the duty schedule, two controllers were responsible for the control of the entire airspace of the uh, Uric Center area during the night shift. They had to assume the tasks of radar planning, RP, radar executive, RE, and to a limited extent, also the functions of the superior. Supervisor. Supervisor. Supervisor, Or the superior. I mean, same thing. Yeah, same thing. But in any case, that means he was doing all of them. Yeah. Therefore, a continuous management of the different tasks was not ensured. An assessment to minimize risks during the night shift did not take place because one person was doing all three tasks. Right. The controllers were obliged to read the directives concerning the accomplishment of the system work, but they did not read them, so they didn't read the briefing. The supervisor, the DL, had merely given them general information about the work. So the supervisor didn't inform them about the work, but they also didn't read the briefing. So Right. Which didn't have much, so it didn't matter. Yeah. It's not like it would have done much for them. <laughs> no. Two assistants were at the disposal of the controllers to support them with the routine and coordination tasks. However, they had no authorization to assume any air traffic control functions, which we talked about. They couldn't, like, take over... For yeah. a flight or anything. After the air traffic flow had decreased, one controller retired to rest at about 10.15. And approximately 10 minutes later, one assistant retired to rest. So an assistant went away as well as a controller. Right. Normally, they would not return to the control room until early in the morning. So they'd take a, a long snoozy snooze. Pretty much. 
Watch a movie, something. Yeah. It had been known to and tolerated by the management that the quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company for years that during the night at periods of low traffic flow only, one controller performed all traffic control tasks, whereas the other controller had a rest. So the management knew what was going on. They didn't really care. And they basically signed off on it, too. They didn't just know about it, but they were okay with it. Which, again, I kind of understand... To a certain degree. Both controllers were qualified and licensed in accordance with the regulations. Yep. The controller remaining in the control room, which was Peter Nielsen, was examined after the accident for medicine, drugs, and alcohol, which proceeded to a negative result. So he wasn't on anything when he was doing his job. Yeah, but he actually did, after this accident, end up in the hospital for mental Yeah, I'll get into that later. Yeah. Yeah. At the time of the accident, the controller had to control three airplanes, which was the 757, the the Tompolov? Tupolev. Tupolev. Tupolev airplane, and then the Airbus A320 that he tried to transfer to the other air traffic control center. Right. The Airbus was controlled on a 119 frequency, 119.920 megahertz frequency. And the other two airplanes were on a different frequency. Therefore, they could not hear each other, which resulted in a simultaneous transmissions. For all flights, the control strips were available to the controller in time. From the control strips, the impending conflict situation, which was the 57 and the Tomplov? Tupolev. Tupolev. I don't know why I can't say <laughs> Tupolev. Tupolev. Was only recognizable in combination with the radar display. So basically, when they when air traffic controller gets handed the strips, he couldn't tell immediately from that that they were on a collision course. You right. could only tell that from the radar. Yep. Right. I skipped over that entire part. Because it kind of just makes sense. Yeah. The strips really had nothing to do with it anyways. No. Yeah. The controller was solely responsible for the entire ATC within the Zurich Center. For this, he had to fill two adjacent workstations with different frequencies and worked with two radar monitors in order to control flights in the upper airspace and the approach in the lower airspace to... Friedrichshafen. Thank you. Friedrichshafen. Radar charts with different ranges were displayed on the monitors. The controller was not aware... That in the fallback mode, the optical STCA was not available, which means the the blinking lights and the things that tell him that there's a collision thing that's going to happen didn't work. Weren't working. A collision thing? Are you just going to make fun of me? (laughs) (laughs) Impending collision? I am trying to make it so people understand what's happening. They appreciate it. That's my job. Yeah. (laughs) The system did not provide an automatic indication that the optical STCA was not available. So there was nothing to say that it wasn't available on the radar itself. Right. It, just the fact that it just didn't work. It would be nice if like there was some kind of warning that was just like Or like a light that wasn't on or yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that in a yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure you will. During the last five minutes prior to the collision, the controller paid more attention to the Airbus A320 in approach to Frankenschaffen. Friedrichshafen. Friedrichshafen. <laughs> I'm so sorry. German. It's hard. But the bypass telephone system had temporarily a technical defect so that the necessary coordination with the other control Friedrichshafen. area could not take place by phone. Yeah. So the phones just weren't working. Yeah. At 10.33, 
the radar controller of UAC Carl Schrue was alerted by his STCA of the conflict situation. His attempts to warn the controller at the Zurich Center by phone were not successful as the telephone connection could not be established because the phones were working. Right. The controller did not notice the imminent separation infringement in time. He instructed the Tupolev crew at 10.34, which is like 43 seconds prior to the collision, to descend to flight level 350, which was too late to ensure the required separation from the Boeing 757. The phraseology used did not correspond with the urgency of the situation. So he didn't... He said expedite and not immediately. And he also, like, didn't make sure that they were free of each other before he left his screen to go to the other one. Mm -hmm. Which I think... I think he thought... By telling the one, everything would be fine. Yeah, because he assumed that one of them would just continue on their course and the other one would go down and it would be fine. But he didn't hear the transmission from the other plane. And because he didn't stay on his radar enough, he didn't realize that essentially well and he could workload he couldn't see real time altitudes right Right. because the radar was running slow too so So everything was working against him yeah it's as we always talk about it was a combination of things that caused this to happen it wasn't just one thing a perfect storm if you will it was a lot of a perfect yeah. storm yeah. this time. But, uh, and, and, uh, honestly, this storm like starts off just by their flight plan, both being cleared at thirty six thousand. Yeah, that's like and like heading, you know, right. Just if you look at a map and just the routes of each aircraft. Yeah, those paths cross. Oh yeah, one way or the other. Yes, and just depending on when one leaves and when the other leaves, that's the only thing stopping those planes from you know right. colliding. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Crashing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could say a collision. Yes. Probably in the midair. Yeah. <laughs> of the midair <laughs> variety. <laughs> oh boy. We're we're just making not not light, but we're trying to not be bogged down in depression. We're trying to be more humorous. In a very dark situation. Yeah. A lot of people a lot of children died, friends. Because I when we well, were watching twenty nine of them. It was uh, more than that. It was forty yeah. 40- 46 children, I think. 28 were found together. Oh, that's right. When we were watching the episode, I was begging Nick that we wouldn't have to watch it or freaking cover this episode because I was getting so upset. It's really terrible. Yeah. And I, you know, we don't, we don't mean to really make light of the actual situation itself, but this is so terrible that we're trying to, how can you do this without being completely dark? And we just have to try to make it tolerable. So there's my insert. Don't yell at us as we laugh at stupid jokes. Thank you. This has been my TED Talk. Also, I like making stupid jokes, so don't yell at me for making stupid jokes. And we're not laughing at the deaths of the people. We're laughing at some of the other things. This is more the technicalities. And Miranda saying simultaneous. And simultaneous. Stop. (laughs) Stop. That's how I say it. Okay. At 10.34, the prescribed separation of seven nautical miles was infringed, which is a cool word i guess it's a weird way to put it (laughs) i know (laughs) all right the next section is acas and tcas so uh the tupolov crew followed the atc instruction immediately and initiated a descent at 10 34 35 seconds prior to the collision tcas generated ras in both aircraft simultaneously 
Don't stop. Nope. <laughs> okay. The Boeing 757 crew received an RA to descend. The co-pilot was not in his seat at the time because he was in the bathroom. He had to pee. Also, I would like the record to show that he was only in the bathroom for like 20 seconds. Yeah, so good for yeah. him, Good speed. I guess. Yeah. Good yeah. speed peeing. Yeah. He said, I'm not, I don't have to deal with this flight, but I'm going to make it seem like, I, like I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be here. I'm going to yeah. be right back. And he was literally right back. Yeah. He was fast. Fast. Anyways. Sorry. <laughs> the pilot in command followed the RA and initiated the descent. So the captain initiated the descent. The Tupolev crew had already initiated the descent when they received the RA to climb. The RA did not change the decision, and the descent was continued. This decision did not take into account that very likely, simultaneously with the, this RA, the other airplane involved would receive a complimentary RA. So it didn't. They didn't take. Also, they weren't they, considering the other airplane. Yeah, and also they didn't have a lot of training on yeah. this, so I don't think right. they would have even known that the other airplane would have gotten something to have them descend. Right. Well, also considering that, based on how investigators warded that their training went of sitting in a cockpit on the ground, it's like here's how TCAS works. Five minutes later, okay, you can go now. Yeah. That doesn't give you very much it practical all just training. Seems so hairy to me. Whereas yeah. if you're in a simulator, different story. You can simulate a plane coming at you. You can hear the, you can hear TCAS give you the calls, and at that point, an instructor can say, "Okay, you see how it's saying descend? It's telling the other plane to ascend." So you have yeah. that juxtaposition. Because they juxtaposition. talk to each other. That's how it works. Whereas right. if you're going through a five minute on the ground in a dead cockpit training it doesn't work well and you could even be told the same thing but because you're not experiencing it it's not gonna stick well and we also talk about a lot on this podcast that you need to train enough to where if you get in a situation where you're in a really 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 dangerous it's instinctive it's instinctive you do it automatically because you're trained to do so right and unless you talk with ATC, which is fine, right? There's ways to make sure that if you do talk with ATC and you change whatever you're going to do that's separate from TCAS, that you're talking to an actual person. So it kind of like jars you out of the immediate, let's follow TCAS. You know what I mean? And they didn't have that because their training was not good enough. Yeah, right. that's uh, like a little like a little mini accident. It was a GA aircraft that happened and what happened was it was a Cirrus pilot and you know oh. and <laughs> a Cirrus pilot you that say. That explains everything right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh you know, they said, "Oh, spin recovery." Well, you know, you know, they took a plane out. They didn't really like, you know, they're still like getting checked out in the plane. Mm-hmm. And you know, they got into a spin and did they pull the freaking parachute? They, they tried to pull the chute. But they were in a 152. Oh. oh. They were in the wrong mm-hmm. plane. So, yeah. Uh, oh, there's no shooting a 152. Yeah, I mean, they, they were only a couple hundred feet off the ground. Like, it was... It was it was a, matter. Yeah, it was a slip to final. And the, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just poking fun at Cirrus pilots, by the way. I... To we, be clear, I worked in a Cirrus training center. Yeah. <laughs> also, to be clear, we know one of our listeners is training in a Cirrus. Yes, that's why I specifically brought up, we're just poking fun. <laughs> because and we know one of you is a Cirrus pilot. Someday we will talk with Brendan in a post-episode about Cirrus pilots and all the jokes about Cirrus pilots. Oh, I'm pretty have, sure yeah. we have. I have plenty. They're, I mean, they're pretty funny. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to our, we know the one listener is, a, is training in a Cirrus aircraft. 
you, there's a stereotype. Which, cool. Good for yeah, you. Yeah. But yeah, Cirrus are fun. Uh, but it's just, amazing it's just that airplanes. one thing where they're like, hey, this plane can't recover from a spin, so we're not going to teach you it. You're just going to pull the chute. Yeah, just pull the chute if you ever get into a spin. There is a stereotype, and we are poking fun, and you deserve it. But yeah, it's just like, <laughs> it's like that same principle, though. It's yes. Just, yeah. Yeah, they were trained for something completely different. Right. And yeah, so they didn't, they and used what so they were they, trained for. And, that's and they didn't use what they were told to use. Yeah. Because that's not what they, what they trained for, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The co-pilot of the Topinov... Tupolev. Tupolev. I'm sorry. I was so good up till that point. Tupolev (laughs) questioned the continuation of the descent twice. So he was like, yo, uh, assist, ascend. And they were like, shut up. (laughs) They didn't do that. But I I like to think that's what happened. Uh, I like the next sentence. (laughs) Yeah, me too. He could not gain anybody's ear. Meaning... Nobody they just was ignored listening him. to him. Yeah. yeah, they were all like, just ignoring. They were him. like, "What is this guy? What are you doing? What, Why are you even here?" What I mean, a way to phrase that. Climb. But despite yeah. all that, everyone died. Yeah. What a way to phrase that. It's just weird. It, it's, <laughs> I've I've seen it in uh, novels. Yeah, but yeah. not in a report. I don't know. It's, it's a in, really informal were, way of saying it. To they me. were was trying this, to give it a little bit of flavor. Was this translated? Yes. 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 A comment that TCAS was priority over ATC did not come from any of the crew members. Why? Because they were trained one time that that was the case. The Boeing 757 crew reported 23 seconds after the RA, the TCAS descent, to Zurich Center. The co-pilot had had taken his seat. Yes, it says hat. Had. <laughs> <laughs> taken his seat again at the time and the frequency was free according to his statement the controller did not notice the message from the boeing 757 crew the first part of the message was incomprehensible due to the simultaneous transmission of both crew m- members i'm guessing of both flights is what they meant to say there the second part collided with a message at the adjacent workstation re transmission with the um Airbus A320. So actually, they do mean both crew members because both crew members oh, talked at the same time. Oh, because they talked time. at the same time. Yes, for the first half of the message, and then the yeah. second half of the message was stepped on by somebody not in the cockpit. <laughs> Once the controller noticed that the Tupolev Tupolev yeah. Tupolev had initiated the descent, he again turned to the A320, whose crew had already called him twice. He did not continue to observe the developing situation, which is why I think he shouldn't be in- involved with landing traffic yeah as well as other traffic because what if something like this happens again and you're also trying to land a plane right that's it's too much going on at the same time an automatic downlink integrated into tcas equipment carrying information about issued ras to the respective atc units has not been introduced worldwide yet it was determined that that with the prescribed reports via radio delays and loss of information may occur. So basically what that's saying is there's no way for air traffic control to know what each TCAS in each plane has said. Right. Which makes sense. I mean, yeah. that that's a lot of information for 2002. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's too technologically advanced. Overload, if you will. The ACAS slash TCAS related international regulations and national procedures valid on the day of the accident were not sufficiently clear or incomplete and misleading and did not fully correspond to the system philosophy. So the ICAO 
was not doing a really good job of regulating TCAS. In the Mayday episode, they spoke of several near misses. Like, one happened near Japan where there was a near miss where, like, the planes filled up each other's entire windshields. They were flying right, like, head on towards each other, and they narrowly missed each other because one had followed TCAS. And the other didn't? Yeah. But ICAO didn't do anything. And then it happened another four times in Europe. Yeah, but they didn't collide with each other. Like, this is the accident that caused it to go, oh, wait, so maybe we should do something about this. I got more on that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There's there's a lot of that this episode. (laughs) In in the Mayday episode, they specifically mentioned that the only regulatory body that had fully regulated TCAS was the FAA. Yep. Yeah, because the United States, especially around this time, was trying to get... Well, this is post-9-11. Yeah, Yeah, this is post-9-11. Right? I mean, (laughs) trying to make sure that accidents don't happen. I I think at this point, we were pretty tired of things colliding into each other. Yeah, makes (laughs) sense. Two, most of the collisions that have happened up to this point had happened in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. We still have several very Three of the ones. ones we've talked about. Yes. So, and there's still some very key ones we haven't even talked about yeah. yet. Right. So when the FAA is like, hey, we have this thing now. Let's make sure it freaking works and everyone knows how to freaking use it. Whereas, and make sure that there's a regulation that says you listen to TCAS unless yeah. you're instructed otherwise by an ATC personnel. Whereas the rest of the world's like, eh, it hasn't really happened to us yet. We're fine. <sighs> you should never do that. We've talked about that multiple times. So right. yeah. there's my spiel on that. This small TED Talk, which there are many of in oh, this episode. I should, I should mention what the ICAO stands for, for our new listeners. The International Civil Aviation Organization. ICAO. There you go. Yeah. Or as and then they you s- also have the International Air Transport Association. IATA. Yep. The IATA. For anyone who's I- new here. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the Mayday episode, they said IKO. Yeah, IKO. Yeah. For ICAO. Oh. So, uh, it depends where you go, but, yes. like... that's true. I think a lot of people in the department actually say, I shall. I shall? Really? Yeah. That's weird. Uh, I don't like that. I don't yeah. like that one at all. I just... ICAO is great with me. Yeah. I yeah. See, it's, it's, it's an abbreviation. Okay. Causes. Because there's more than one. The following immediate causes have been identified. The imminent separation infringement was not noticed by ATC in time. The instruction for the Tupolev <laughs> to descend was given at a time when the prescribed separation to the Boeing 757-200 could not be insured anymore. And then the Tupolev crew followed the ATC instruction to descend and continued to do so even after TCAST advised them to climb. This maneuver was performed contrary to the generated TCAS RA. Mm-hmm. Or which, resolution advisory. Right, which is, by the way, against their regulations that we've talked about. But For okay. yet and against. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. The following systemic causes have been identified. The integration of ACAS slash TCAS 2 into the system aviation was insufficient and did not correspond in all points with the system philosophy. The regulations concerning ACASH slash TCASH published by, I'm going to say the ICAO, and as a result, the regulations of national aviation authorities, operational and procedural instructions of the TCASH manufacturer and the operators were not standardized, incomplete and partially contradictory. Yeah, I would say so. 
Management and quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company did not ensure that during the night all open workstations were continuously staffed by controllers. What a concept. Thank you. Yeah, that's a big one. Management and quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company tolerated for years that during times of low traffic flow at night, only one controller worked, the other one retired to rest. So they were okay with the fact that one of them just left their workstation. Mm -hmm. So recommendations, as I pretty much always say when I cover these, there's going to be a few I skip. If you want to read through all of them, go for it. The report's on the website. But that's a lot, so we're not going to cover all of them. Okay, so the first recommendation I'm going to talk about is the Federal Office for Civil Aviation, or the FOCA, should ensure that the air traffic control service provider issues and implements procedure to undertake maintenance work in the ATC systems, stipulating operational effects and available redundancies. The procedure shall include the following aspects. Stipulating the detailed responsibilities of the operational division and the technical deviation. So what's going to, or division. Uh, so what's going to happen, so, right? So, so in short, all they're saying is, hey, if there's a maintenance, what's going to happen and how's it going to affect, which is honestly, right. that's a lot of what most of the problem here was. Yes. yes. Was that exact thing. And then personnel reserve planning of the operational staff for maintenance work on the ATC system. So making sure you have enough people to cover it when maintenance is occurring. Yes. Timely dissemination of procedure to the controllers in order to prepare them to deal with the situations. So giving them time to know and understand what's going on with the maintenance. Establish and implement the checklist for the maintenance as well as operational staff when maintenance work on the ATC systems is undertaken to enhance the safety net or network. And then selection of the best possible time from operational aspects for the maintenance work on the ATC systems to occur. So so maybe there was a more dead hour that they could have done maintenance. Yeah, yeah. where they have like pretty much no traffic where this would not have been a problem. Like 2 a.m. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the next one I'm going to paraphrase because reading through all of these is extra. The next one is basically about personnel and, and a minimum number of people in air traffic control, specifically for yes. Zurich control. And, and how they said that there's at least two controllers on active duty at all times, at least two controllers to manage en route sectors, RP... So the radar planner and the radar executive or the RE. So making sure that if they need to call other areas to hand off flights, that they're able to do so, which was not the case here because the phones were out. And then additional controllers shall be assigned to manage breaks. So having an extra person there, so when someone goes on break, someone takes over for them instead of having one controller do two persons work. Yep. Oh, so the next one is a recommendation that the ICAO should ensure that rules and procedures regarding the ACAS system are uniform, clear, and unambiguous. Compliance should be ensured in the ICAO annexes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So making sure that that system is being regulated by the ICAO that, and it's being followed. That is arguably the heaviest recommendation. because yeah. read that, those bullet points. Those are important because this one is really where... If they had followed the TCAS system at the minimum... They would have been fine. They would have been fine. So, the air traffic controller, sure, would have made mistakes. Wouldn't have been his fault. 
Yeah, so uh, the event, in the event of an ACAS resolution advisory, or an RA, to alter the flight path, pilots shall respond immediately and maneuver as indicated, unless doing so would jeopardize the safety of the airplane, and never maneuver in the opposite sense of the RA, nor maintain a vertical rate in the opposite sense of the RA. So, basically, it that, that whole regulation just... Yeah, if that were there in place, or, or I should say recommendations, that's what that was at the time. Yes. If that were there in place at this accident, yeah. Th- and trained. It, it, yeah, and, and trained, it wouldn't have been an accident at right. all. Because that's exactly what they did. The, you know, you had one plane that was following it, and the other plane that said, no, I'm not going to follow it. Yeah, air I'm traffic control do the exact opposite. told me something else. Honestly, if the other plane had stayed even at the same altitude... It just didn't do anything. Right. Right. That that would have been fine. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you're right. The next safety recommendation is basically just saying that the ICAO should ensure that there's a high level of acceptance and confidence in pilots and staff with the ACAS system and also providing and implementing education and training on the system so that pilots understand and know how it works and that they have simulator training and and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. which is important, right? Because you want to make sure you have enough training that if this happens, because obviously it did, that your pilots understand and know what's going on. So the next one is basically to make sure that ICAO improve requirements and things so that communications aren't completely, like, stepped on and not heard and that there should be some sort of thing where someone says something back so you know that, oh, they heard me, they understood my transmission. And this happened more than just in this accident. It happened in Tenerife, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked about that. Making sure that air traffic control can hear you <laughs> right. yeah. and knows what you're doing. And don't just assume they heard it unless yeah. they've answered you. Yeah. That's basically what the next one says. They recommend that the Civil Aviation Authority of the Russian Federation should ensure that exposure to crew resource management training within the airline industry is advanced. Mm -hmm. The use of flight simulators or appropriate synthetic training devices for line-operated flight training should be promoted. Which, again, as we talked about, was part of the problem here. They didn't have simulator training on TCAS system. Right. So those were the big points, I think, that went into this. Aaron will talk a little bit more at the very, very end about some of the stuff that was implemented after this crash, because this was a very, very important big crash. There, There is so much that this report doesn't even comprehend. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's so much that's changed <laughs> since then. Yeah. Because, again, this came out in, I think the report came out in 2004. 2004. The recommendations yeah. did, anyway. It was actually a long-winded thing. It took, the, it took German investigators over two years to do this. I mean, it was a big... Big thing. Yeah, to like figure out what like happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And break down how to make this better. Yeah. So we're going to get into a little bit of a true crimey thing real quick about what happened to the air traffic controller that was in charge of this flight. So we're going to talk about Vitaly Koloyev. Vitaly Koloyev, at the time of the accident, was a 46-year-old architect who was working in Spain. He was working in Barcelona, which makes sense. He's a native to North Cassius, the North Cassius region of Russia. And he wanted his family, so his wife, Svetlana, his 10-year-old son, Konstantin, and his 4-year-old daughter, Diana, to come visit for a month-long holiday. And when I say holiday, I mean vacation. That's the term. In Barcelona, which is where this flight was going, right? It was chartered. So he actually booked their flight 
literally three hours before it left. Right. And this was a charter flight, mind you. This wasn't. So they literally just tacked them on to the charter. They tacked them on, yeah. Yeah. Because they had the empty seats anyways. They're like, cool. Well, this pays for some more of the fuel. Right. So he waited at the airport for the plane, which never arrived. When he found out what had happened, he immediately went to the crash site. Investigators let him. Uh, and I think I read something about this in my research, and I couldn't specifically find it in an article, so I didn't specifically say it. But I'm pretty sure he haggled with the investigators to get him to volunteer to help volunteer to help find bodies. Bodies. <laughs> and I don't know if they did this with other people too. It didn't say, but so I know he got was able to do so. The effort to find bodies and realistically body parts was a 6,000 man effort over weeks. Insane. Which makes sense because it was the the wreckage was strewn over a specific area and it was an explosion, so and, yeah. I mean having one slip through the cracks of 6,000? Yeah. It's not hard to track when you're trying to get this all done quickly. It's hard yeah. it's hard to say no, you're obviously a family member, we're not letting you in versus no, we need the manpower come help us. Yeah. Right. And I don't think he said that his family was on the plane. I think he just said I want to help or something like that. So he went searching for his family. He found his daughter Diana first. She was tangled in some trees which had broken her fall from the aircraft. He also had found her pearl necklace first. Mm-hmm. From the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, I found my daughter Diana three kilometers from where the plane hit the ground. I recognized her immediately. My daughter fell to the ground like an angel. Her body wasn't damaged at all, end quote. Yeah, she was actually pretty well intact. Yeah, she... She it, was not badly hurt. No. Physically. I mean, she did die, but she... Impact forces suck. Yeah. Yeah. But she, it looked like nothing had happened to her. Well, and she probably was unconscious for so long due to vertical forces. She might have died from lack of blood flow to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Also, More than likely. Uh, fun fact: in in the event of an accident or crash, or even like car crash or whatever, mm -hmm. go flippy floppy, your survival chances go up. If you stiffen up, that's where like yeah. a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. That's how yeah. a lot of drunk drivers survive. Yeah. Yep. He then found his wife in a cornfield. And his son on the road in front of a bus shelter. It did not say what State. condition they were in. The Mayday episode said they were both mutilated. Which makes sense. Uh, it did say that his daughter was the only one who was distinguishable, really. Which is very sad. A woman who had helped Sky Guide, who was the uh, people who... The Swiss... Uh, air traffic control. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the privately owned air traffic control. She helped with the translation at the memorial service after the crash for the victims. Now, I can't figure out if this was a year after, if it was a couple days after. I kept finding weird each source said something different so it was sure. just after at some point she said that she remembered one agitated man who went to the sky guide office who was at the memorial by the way uh he went to the sky guide office with the lawyer where the employees talked him through what happened during the plane's last moments, which I think is a horrible idea. I don't know why you do that to a family yeah. member. Yeah. Uh, but he asked, and they told him. After finding out what had caused the accident, Koloyev considered the air traffic controller who was on duty the night of the accident at fault. He wanted to meet the person who had, quote-unquote, caused the crash. When Sky Guy told him no... 
He said, quote, the air traffic controller is a villain, and in the Caucasus, we talk to villains in our own way, end quote. And then he left their office. That's obviously a big sign of, like, that's not good. Oh, yeah, no. Koloyev hounded Skyguide for two years to find out the name of the air traffic controller. He was told to be patient and that he would get a payout for the loss of his family, and uh, to which he said he was very insulted by. He really just wanted an apology and that to have someone take responsibility for what had happened. He stopped working and constantly wore black. He turned his family home into a kind of shrine dedicated to his wife and children. His children's bedrooms were like their pictures were on their beds with stuffed animals and their toys on their beds and stuff. It was kind of creepy. They became like shrines and altars. Yeah. And I'll put pictures of this on the website so you guys can see it because it's it's sad, really. It's a guy who, you know, is highly in grief because he lost his whole family. He lost his family, right? Mm -hmm. So... Kloyev got tired of the runaround with Skyguide, and he hired a private investigator, which is how he got the name and the address of the air traffic controller, Peter Nielsen. Peter had a wife, two children, and one on the way at the time of the accident. Two years after the accident, Kloyev traveled to Switzerland to confront the person who was, quote-unquote, thought to be responsible for the killing of his family. Years before, Nielsen admitted responsibility, quote, on the night of the accident, I was part of the network of people, computers, monitoring, and transmission devices, and regulations. All these parts must work together seamlessly and without error, and they must be synchronized. As an air traffic controller, it was my task and duty to prevent such accidents. So many children lost their lives, and so many hopes for the future were erased. End quote. Nielsen had a mental breakdown after the crash, which, by the way, if you know anything about air traffic controllers who have some sort of responsibility, quote-unquote, with crashes like this, mm -hmm. they tend to, first of all, quit air traffic control. Oh, yeah. And they tend to need extensive therapy, which he did. Absolutely. And um, he did retire from air traffic control. He never went back into ATC yeah, again. Yeah, most do, and I don't, I don't blame him. Yeah. So Kloyev had stalked Peter to see where he lived. Then Kaloyev had approached Nielsen at his residence and stated that he just wanted an apology for the death of his family and started showing pictures of his dead family to Nielsen, who had told him to leave because, first of all, he probably couldn't talk about it for legal reasons. Well, and I'm sure he didn't want to talk about it, period, because yeah. it's not a fun He probably thing, had PTSD. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he did. And, you know, he it's not something he wanted to bring up again, so he asked Kaloyev to leave. So at this point... Kloyev states that he blacked out and doesn't remember what happened, but here's what happened. Kloyev then took out a pocket knife and stabbed Nielsen numerous times and left the blade in his stomach and then ran away. Peter Nielsen was 36 years old with three kids and a wife who were just inside when he was murdered. His wife heard him scream and found his body. Kloyev was stopped at the Zurich airport as he was trying to leave Switzerland. He was then taken to trial and convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to eight years in a Swiss prison, which, by the way, is, like, minimal security prison. And it's just crazy, only eight years. Yeah. Well, a lot of that part of the world focuses on rehabilitation. Yes. Yep. Rather than punishment. Right. So he had actually only served three of the eight years, uh, and then he was expedited back to Russia because of Russian government lobbying, asking him to be released, and yep. they released him. 
So he didn't pay out his full sentence. That's where he is now. Yes. And he got when he got to Russia, his actions were viewed as an act of heroism by some. Not everyone had this disposition, however. Here's a quote from the Chicago Tribune from Dmitry Orishkin. I'm sorry if I mispronounced the last name. He was a lead researcher at Moscow's Institute of Geography when this quote was taken. He said, quote, We live in a very sick society. This is the clan mentality which Stalin successfully instilled in the minds of our ancestors and our people. End quote. He tried to go to the ceremony of the 10-year anniversary of the accident in 2012. This is Koloyev. However, he was detained at the Munich airport. Swiss officials did not want him at the ceremony, and his visa was on a watch list from Switzerland because he still owed them money for his incarceration. Right. However, he was allowed to go to the ceremony when Russian diplomats offered to accompany him to the ceremony. Which... It's so weird to me that the Russian government just keeps coming to people's aids like that. Like, I don't know. He's a criminal. He killed somebody. Maybe not give him diplomatic immunity by showing that he... I mean, not saying that he shouldn't be able to go some, to a ceremony where he can mourn his family, but not, but, not to get him out of situations like this because he did commit murder. We also don't know that much about Russian culture. That's true. No. And I'm sure this is part of Russian culture because... I, it's not American culture. <laughs> no one's going to come to your aid if you commit murder in the United States and then try to go to a different country to do a thing. Like, right. no one's going to help you out there. So he is now remarried. He has two twins, actually, children, with his new wife. Wow. To this day, he has shown no remorse for his actions in killing Peter. So this is one thing I read about that I thought was really weird. He really didn't have any remorse, and... There's actually several songs written about him and several movies that have both been made and are supposedly in the works. One of which I think fell through that was supposed to have Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, it didn't. It didn't? No. Did they actually play him? Yeah. Okay. I never heard if it actually was made or not. It, um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It's like 485 or something like that. No. It had a number. I don't remember. And I don't think it's a number, actually. It's called Aftermath. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Uh, so there's all these things that are based around him because specifically because he has no remorse right a lot of people drew artistic inspiration because of that which is weird to me but it's it's that whole i understand he wants the vengeance but i still he sought it in the wrong place if you ask me it doesn't fix anything no Killing, first of all peter wasn't the only reason why the plane went down oh absolutely not and peter wasn't at fault he didn't yeah. Which is a whole nother thing, yeah. because Peter, there was there was attempted charges on him for in, in, involuntary manslaughter, as well as on the company. You really can't blame him. He was trying yeah. to do his job, and he was put under an, a, a, a really strange workload. Yeah, With uh, Cause, radars cause, that didn't work to 100% capacity, and the phone's not working. He wasn't and... trying to be negligent. That was no. just what happened. He didn't want it yeah. to happen. It was, it was, he was a... Unfortunately, a victim of circumstance. Yeah. So real quick, this is the last thing I have on this. Koloyev stated this after what had happened to Peter. He said, quote, he was an idiot 
and that's why he paid for it with his life. If he had been smarter, it wouldn't have been like this. If he invited me into the house, the conversation would have happened in softer tones, and the tragedy might not have happened, end quote. There's still no justification for murder. I'm sorry. There's not. And to be fair... I don't fair, care who you are or what they did. There's no justification To be for fair, murder. he did say he blacked out, but... My inclination is if you black out because of that much rage, you really shouldn't be confronting the person right. who you consider to be the cause of your family's death. Right. That's just not healthy. And getting an apology from him, it really wasn't his fault. Right. And it's not going to, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not going to solve anything. It's in not going to bring your family back. No. That's a rough one. It's terrible. It's a tragedy. And that part of the story is really rough, too, because that's. Not something you wish on anybody, and it just is amazing that he still has no remorse, and he still feels that way. It just, it's weird to me. It's all very weird to me. I can't imagine. But, I mean, I can't imagine losing your entire family. That's, in it all sucks. In a plane crash, yeah. Yeah, so, so, like I said, involuntary manslaughter charges were brought against Peter, as well as Sky Guide. And I think they managed to keep Peter from getting actually charged with it. But they, Sky Guy did take the fall for some of it. They specifically targeted eight employees, and four of them took on some of the, the blame. But then four did not. Yeah. Uh, they managed to kind of mitigate. They find they mitigated the problem, and Sky Guide was like, "Yes, we, we screwed up. This yeah. was our our fault." So, you know, they they tried to pin it on the German government too, which was really interesting. Because they blame the German government for negligence. But in the end, all of this was they settled on some money for the families. It wasn't yeah. what all the families wanted, but it is what they got. And it was unfortunate. Yeah. All right, Aaron, you want to wrap everything up? Yeah. So just to touch on the murder, actually. And like, you know, it's not said anywhere, but the reason that the reason I think that a lot of people like said well, you know, that they thought this was an act of heroism mm-hmm. was because, you know, Kloyev's family was not the only Russian family on that planet. Oh, no. At oh, all. no. It wasn't, no. By far. By far. He like, was like, greeted by many people when he got back to Russia that said, thank you for doing this for our country. Because everyone, a lot of people thought it was the air traffic controller's fault. Yeah, because, you know, when, you know, you go through such, like, a traumatic thing like that, you know, the five stages of grief is real. I've been through it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, oh, many and, people and, have. And, and, like, when you get to that anger spot, you're, like, looking for anything to blame. And yeah. You, yeah. you're literally searching for something. Of course. And when they found that, oh, the one thing that we can relate to that, you know, we took into our own hands. Well, you know, we being Gloyev. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, finally, <laughs> I can yeah. relax. The deed is done. Right, but and, that's but it's still yeah. it's still not like a means it's not of grounds, right, though. But yeah, yeah, it's just like I I could see how the process happened. Yes, you know. So going into a lot of the things, we we kept talking about uh, this is the biggest one, and there's a reason this is big because this problem has been fixed. Yes, a lot. Radar fallback mode. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. So typically back then the radars when they spin. They have a beam and that blips out, and that's why the faster they spin, the more accurate radars are, and the more you know reliable. It's it's not like a refresh, but it kind of is. It's, well, it's almost like a frame rate. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You're getting more frames of what's happening per second. 
But in fallback mode back then, it was very inefficient. Like, it, you know, at 100% speed, and even still, radar back then was not up to par to where it is today. Right. You know, 100% speed, six that 36,000 feet, the controller in fallback mode probably saw that that same altitude, even though they had already started descending. Right, they couldn't tell that they actually weren't. Yeah. The thing is, he probably saw them at the same altitude for probably, like, a good 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. At least, before he even noticed one of them started descending. And that's just one revolution. That's the same place, you know, moved here, you know, uh, like, quarter inch up the screen, if that, and going, oh, okay, this doesn't look like a conflict because especially if he's switching back and forth, the, how much the planes are moving is very insignificant yes. unless he is seeing it in real time, which honestly is like one of like the big things that came out of this crash was, Oh, we need to make radar faster and more reliable. Yeah. And actually here in Colorado, CDOT, has been doing like a wonderful job. They're mm-hmm. out there. CEDA Aviation, it's a whole branch. Colorado people... Department of Avi- uh, Transportation. Col- yeah, yes. the aviation branch. <laughs> they have been like putting radar dishes everywhere. Yeah. Because center on ground can only see so much, and most of it's blocked by the Rockies. Right. And so what they're trying to do now in this project is they're they're going, hey, any remote place in the mountains, we're going to put a radar dish on top of that mountain. Right. Because now we're going to be able to have, and they're going to sync it with like Denver Center, whichever center controls mm-hmm. that radar. That way, all the information comes back correct. And this is one of those accidents where that like had a huge effect. Because oh, yeah. even still, like him going between two screens, uh, if everything was working, that still would have been... It would have been tough still. It, it would have been tough because he's still seeing those blips move just... And then, boop. <laughs> right. And then, it doesn't tell him much. It, it doesn't tell him much. It doesn't give you... Uh, that's the other thing is a lot of blips these days don't give you headings. It They have trails. And you just have to kind of, like, follow... Guide based on that. Guide based on where the trail is going. You And then once you get start talking to a plane, another problem here was... You know, the controller only talked to the... Uh, uh, Tupolev. The, yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, the Tupolev and not the, the 757. Yeah, the Tupolev plane and, yeah, not the 757, where if he was talking to that 757, he still kind of, you know, that would have been, you know, four planes he's talking to on top of, hey, this radar is not... It's, it's, not, it's not working it properly. Is, it is not working properly, and even if it was... It still wasn't working, like, going between two screens. It is not good to do that at right, all. Right, right. That's just so much delayed information. And when you switch from a screen, you delay that information even more. That's mainly where a lot of these human factors come from, is where, you know, and like I said, he was trying his best. Like, he's on it, astounded that was even happening. <laughs> and the second biggest thing that came out of this was the controlling of sectors and we talk about this a lot in air traffic training and things like that we say hey this this isn't working so either you go to the screen i go to the screen or you know you do handoffs or point outs call outs all the stuff 
CRM in ATC increased a lot as well. Yeah. And that's the one thing that like this accident doesn't really cover is how much it increased because now we're at a point to we have reliable technology and the CRM can back up that technology. Right. Because so- now we're seeing things like, oh, you know, I know where this plane is going and where it came from. Versus back then, it was just, this is what kind of plane it is, altitude and speed. That was mainly the only, you know, real things that you were given information-wise, like, during this accident. Right. And occasionally, like, the advanced transponders would have tail numbers, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Usually, that stuff would either be punched in or you'd have your, your uh, slots and everything, too. So, that was, like, one of, like, the major things now is that air traffic controllers are no longer able to look at someone else's screen. If, especially if you're doing radar stuff like Tracon and the Tracon facilities. Right. You've got yours. You, you and have that's your it. screen and you say, hey, I am transferring him to you. Or you say, hey, that guy's getting ready to go into your airspace. But he, you know, not going to stay there. You still have your screen. There's right. never hey, I'm going to look at your screen while this guy goes into your airspace real quick. Or, you know, there's none of that flip-flopping around. And see, right. back then, that was, you know, that was one of the things, especially... Uh, a common occurrence. Yeah, yeah. especially uh, in international waters. The FAA tried to mitigate this as much as possible, but mm-hmm. it was never written in anything. Right. It was more of just a, hey, do this. This is a safety thing. You don't, you know, have to follow it necessarily. But now it's, hey... For every screen there is in a radar facility, there should be one person. There's a person. There is a person at each screen now. And yeah. if you're going to have breaks, a third person has to be there exactly. to cover that person. Exactly. Which, it, that makes sense because and, then, you know, there's no delays. Everyone understands what's going on. And then there's no difference in controllers when, when aircraft are coming in and out of air. There's no blurring things. of responsibilities. Exactly. Right. And... You know, one thing that you, they don't really talk about was this that transition period. Because people were like, right. oh, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to do that. Well, when they started bringing that third person in, that was like, hey, I'm here to cover breaks. People were like, oh, well, now they didn't know how to schedule things. So then I had a lot right. of towers, you know, being confused on when scheduling is. And you had towers randomly shutting down because of, you know, this law yeah. that they had in place. But they got over it pretty quick like within a month they were like oh okay we can do this (laughs) yeah well then the last and really big thing the other big thing that changed is tcas and the way tcas is used so regulating tcas to the point where the ico said look tcas is primary yeah if it tells you to do something you do that yeah there's a little room for changing that decision if an air traffic controller tells you something keep following the tcas because the other airplane is doing so exactly and and it's going to be faster at telling you what to do than an air traffic controller is. That's just the truth. And that was the other thing that we didn't touch on was the fact that, you know, like I said, that controller probably saw them at the same altitude, which is why he said, hey, you descend. Right. Instead of telling the other plane, 757, to descend, he said, oh, well, you know, on my screen, they look like pretty close to each other because even still... Radar only gives you the, to the closest 100 feet. Right. Um, it doesn't give you a 50 or anything like that. So yeah. he st- was still saying, oh, hey, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're somewhat close. I'm going to have him descend and this guy climb, but couldn't talk to the other guy. Right. 
Well, and shortly thereafter, the TCAS-2 system was developed. And the TCAS-2 system is far more accurate. And it can, instead of doing that 100-foot difference that caused the the TCAS system to keep telling them to do what they were doing rather than reverse, that's now changed, too, because the TCAS-2 system is so much more accurate. Yeah, and and it's more, it it adapts faster. It does. that that was like one of the things that was a good change of TCAS was oh, TCAS two when it said, "Hey, you know, now we don't have to wait that nine seconds." Or right now, it's like if something happens and it switches, mm-hmm. it's going to tell you what to do to a point where on your VSI, it will have a bar and you just follow that bar along right. and you you'll just, be perfectly that's fine. Yep. Yeah, you just follow that indication. Well, and the TCAS now is built into a lot of the glass cockpits we have in airplanes now, which Mm -hmm. really at the time were not new, but newer. And now that it's all basically becoming standard in all the brand new airplanes, it's really built into there where you can see traffic at a much greater distance, at a much higher... And and the thing is, like, what they don't tell you about TCAS, you know, it has the extent of an ADS-B, it's just toned down. Yeah. Because... They they have a TCAS like like fail test kind of thing where right. it basically gets over flood of the information, and like you know it'll it won't call it out but you'll see it on the screen it'll be like oh there's a Cessna under me <laughs> right like uh, ten thousand feet or something and it'll be like oh well at least you know it's there yeah yeah <laughs> it, it won't say anything but you know it it it'll pick them up and yeah the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was what's it called the the two minute warning system oh stca stca that's the better one that's the one i was gonna say say, this doesn't sound like like they're they're the same letters and in my mind i could not get tcas out of my head (laughs) (laughs) so the the stca just for clarification is the short-term conflict alert yes so that system actually now has that alert now where it says hey I've stopped working. <laughs> right. It uh, actually pings and says, <laughs> "Hey, right. I'm off." Yeah. It actually pings. Or it says, on "Hey, I'm not in operation right now." Yeah. Just right. so you know. So there's that, and in radar fallback mode, it kind of like when a master caution goes off in cockpit, where all mm-hmm. everything highlights in red. The yeah. same thing will happen in the air traffic control like facility. Right. Except it has like a whole screen on just systems and how like their status and that's mainly like a lot what the supervisor does. Mm-hmm. The supervisor, you know, they're there for, you know, actually supervising, making sure everything's going in order. Right. But they're also there to look at that screen and they yeah. say, Hey, this isn't working, this isn't working and if it suddenly goes out, that's, you know, they're there. It usually doesn't. Yeah. Usually something happens, like a power failure or something. That's, right. You know, you'll know. But, yeah, in the event that that goes out, now we're at a point to not only does it have the lights on there that says, hey, you have a conflict somewhere, but the actual blips of the icons will change colors. Right. So, it so, so yeah. Points them out. Yeah. On a black and white, they'll start flashing, but a lot of systems still, like, especially radar facilities still use the green screen. Right. And it'll say it'll flip the green blip to a red one or vice versa. Yeah. And it'll, you'll know it's very visual when something bad's about to happen. Cause you'll have bells and whistles going off. It's yeah. It, it's one of those things where you don't really think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we have our own quote unquote T cast, but since it's still on a radar. <laughs> yeah. The, Actual TCAS is now better preferred because we say, oh, here's a conflict. 
and then we'll notify usually you know a good controller will say oh here's a conflict I'm going to either divert the planes. That's usually what happens. Is a yeah, it's usually a heading change yeah, rather it's than a heading, a, yeah, it's an a altitude heading change, change. Rather than an altitude change. Especially depending on where the routes are going. Like, if it's a short hop from, like, BJC to DIA or something like yeah. that. Short hops like that, they'll just say change altitude because that's a short hop. <laughs> right. Well, uh, and a lot of the times, too, you can... Assume they're going to rely on the TCAS system, but yeah. just in case, yeah. I know air traffic controllers will still like feed traffic at your, yeah. you know, six o'clock exactly. and or at your four o'clock exactly. and three miles. And and that was one of the practices that that we actually got to learn was, you know, instead like try and look for alternate ways of diverting people off. Like a diversion is either a first come or a last come, and you have to figure out which is which. You know, if they're close altitude change <laughs> yeah one climb one descend or listen to tcas or usually if it gets to the point where tcas has come on atc has already failed you <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> so so that that's that's mainly like one of the big takeaways here was tcas is literally an emergency system whereas yeah. atc is there to say oh you guys are still 20 miles apart but just in case here you go <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah all okay, right. Good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we need. We are gonna do yeah. like a very, very quick post episode yeah, because fine. it's getting late. Although I don't have to be anywhere. You don't, don't have, have to be anywhere. anywhere. He don't you have to go be to anywhere. bed. <laughs> I do have. To you be do have to be, I do have to be somewhere. You yeah. guys can leave. I can talk with Nick for a while. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If need be. Well, that was the Uber Lincoln midair collision. This is a big one, and I know it was Thank a big one. Thank you for the extra you're welcome i mean for the extra long episode hey, you know what our extra long episodes <laughs> perform really really well they do so you're welcome well uh, probably if you, anybody, this one. if you guys need a road trip anytime soon uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> or you know really long flight across the world you know run a time don't spending. do that <laughs> yeah but thank you so much for listening as always Again, this month is your first aviation experience stories for our aviation stories of the month episode. Submit those on the website. Submit your questions. We do have a listener question. We have seen it. We will get to it next week because this week was a, a lot of research. <laughs> well, and this is a long episode as it is anyway. So. Yeah, so we, w- we didn't have time to cover it this week, but Quite we will we cover it next week. We have received it. We have seen it. We will get to it next week. And then thanks, Aaron. For being on? Of course. Thanks. <laughs> you should submit your first flight stuff. Should the I? First aviation yeah. stories or whatever. Oh, yeah. Some first experience. We have we have a submission on our uh, submission page on our website. Okay, gotcha. Just write a story, something something about your first experience in aviation. Something so that the one person who submits four stories a month isn't the only one anymore. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I'll yeah. put something out there. All right. It's on the website. You'll be able to find it. Yeah, I'll talk about my five hours in a Cirrus. Sweet. <laughs> I'll talk about my simulator time. Yeah. My real simulator time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Please wear a mask. Wear a mask. Aaron wore a mask this whole episode. Yeah, he did. He did. Sorry Thanks. if I was a little quiet. That's okay. <laughs> no, it's all good. That's all right. We can always boost you up. Thanks again, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your, your speed, speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. 
Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.